But why do we want to get a people jobs and fixes? Well, uh, we get 10% of their salaries. Don't we have to do anything for the money? No, we're agents. <laughs> I know, but what do we do? Nothing. We're agents. <laughs> Say, I've been an agent for years. <laughs> Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode number 28, Flywheel, Shyster, and Teft Tower. Hi again, everyone. This is Bob Gassell. You know, we've been looking forward to this uh, particular episode for a long time. When we were spitballing the idea of doing a podcast, we were trying to think of who we would want to have on as guests, and this name was one of the first that came to our minds. And now that the internet has come to Oregon, we've got him. <laughs> but before we meet him, let's meet our co-host. First, from New York City. It says here he's Jewish and has survived coronavirus. I guess that qualifies him to talk about the Marxes, right? Here's Noah Diamond. Is my Aunt Minnie in here? <laughs> and from Bath, England. All we know about this guy is that he's not Jewish and he thinks Monty Python is overrated. Here's Matthew Conium. Hello, old timer. <laughs> you know, whenever I'm watching a documentary or archival release or reading a book, related to the Marxes, or just about anything from that era, there's always one name that pops up in the special thanks portion of the credits, John Teftower. John is an archivist, or an archivist, who specializes in audio recordings. In fact, he is perhaps the world's foremost collector of rare blues records. In 1975, when only a sophomore in high school, John landed a job as Groucho's personal audio engineer and memorabilia scout, seeking out rare photographs, posters, and recordings. Decades later, John continues this work and has accumulated countless hours of rare Marks audio. He has made it his life's mission to restore and release this material, and at the forefront is an upcoming set of long-lost episodes of Groucho and Chico's radio series, Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel. Let's welcome Mr. John Tefteller. Hey, John. Flywheel, Shyster, and Tefteller. That's a great title. Thanks. I'm honored <laughs> by that. Hey, that's good. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me, and thanks, Noah and Matthew and Bob, for putting up with me for however long this is going to go. <laughs> All right. Let's get going here. Uh, let's go way back. How did you first get into the Marx Brothers? Okay. Well, we're going to go way back to the age of about eight years old. Uh, my grandmother uh, lived separately from us in a, in a house, and in her house, she had a wind-up Victrola, one of those old things you crank up and you put a 78 RPM record on there and you play it with a big old heavy tone arm and a big old nail for a needle. And I was fascinated by that. Now, she didn't have any Marx Brothers records or anything like that, uh, but it was given to her on her wedding day in 1923, and she had a series of records from that period, 1923-24, and I would sit in her garage and crank up that wind-up machine and listen to that vintage music, and I thought it was really cool. Had no idea what I was listening to or whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. All I know is it was a really unique way to listen to music. Uh, my first exposure to old movies, I grew up in Southern California, uh, first La Mirada, California, and then when I was in high school, we moved to, to Brea, California. And my first exposure to old movies was all over television in Southern California in the mid-60s, late 60s, 70s. There were 13 channels on your TV, unlike today when there's 500 if you want to pay for them. There were 13 channels. And of those 13 channels, three or four of them would run vintage movies almost every day. So you could watch on any given day 
uh, Humphrey Bogart, uh, the Universal Monster movies, Laurel and Hardy, what, whatever was on was on all the time. It was they were looking for programming, and I guess they filled it with lots and lots of old movies. So my first um, love, so to speak, was Laurel and Hardy. Uh, as an eight and nine year old, I loved watching Laurel and Hardy films. And in elementary school one day, I think this is about the fifth grade, I came out of class. It was recess. And there was another one of my classmates who was running up and down the hall with a horn, honking this horn and yelling, <laughs> Harpo Marx coming through, Harpo Marx coming through. And I had <laughs> no idea yeah, what he was talking about. So I stopped him and I said, who's Harpo Marx? And he says, oh, the Marx Brothers. You don't know the Marx Brothers? And I said, no, nope, no idea. Uh, is it like old comedy? And he goes, yeah, I like Laurel and Hardy. And I said, well, I like Laurel and Hardy. And he goes, well, you should check out the Marx Brothers. And, and then he kept on with his Harpo Marx coming through and chasing up and down the, the hallways. A few days later, I'm looking through the TV guide and seeing uh, it's a Marx Brothers film. So I watched it. First Marx Brothers film I ever saw was Monkey Business. Good one to start with. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, this is really good. This is like Laurel and Hardy, but not like Laurel and Hardy. It's much more, I guess, witty and like wild and crazy. And so I thought, wow, I really like these guys. So I started scouring the TV guides. That's what you did back then is look for what was scheduled to come up. And I, I saw more Marx Brothers movies and more Marx Brothers movies. And finally, it wasn't too long because they were running all the time before I had seen most of them. And that's that's how it started. Um, in 1971, uh, my mother used to have KFI Los Angeles radio on. KFI was a 50, or still is, a 50,000-watt radio station that covered at night, the entire West Coast and as far east as Colorado's in some cases. And she used mm -hmm. to listen to KFI radio. And there was a, an announcement that I just happened to be, she had KFI radio on. It was having my breakfast. And it said, tomorrow, the KFI 50th anniversary show is coming on. And we'll have a whole lot of people from the history of KFI, uh, a whole lot of people from what they were calling old time radio. And uh, there'll be special appearances by Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and Bob Hope and Jack Benny and Groucho Marx. And I went, whoa, Groucho Marx, he's still alive? <laughs> and so <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I thought, I got to listen to this. So the next day I put on the KFI 50th anniversary program. This is, this is 1971. I don't remember exactly what month, but whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And he basically came on and just said, hello, this is Groucho Marx. I'm the one with the cigar and the mustache. I think my first appearance is around 1932. That goes back so far that most of the microphones we use were big square boxes. And I think that most of the performers were big squares too. It seems to me that Harpo and I did a comedy routine. Of course, Harpo didn't come across very well on the radio, and the spot turned out to be a monologue. After that, we made motion pictures, Harpo, Chico, Zeppo, and I. We spent a day at the races, a night at the opera, and while we were making animal crackers, we really ate well. Somewhere along the way, John Goodell asked me if I do a quiz show for NBC. Can you imagine, after 40 years in show business, they invited me to end up as an encyclopedia? Well, I did the show, and to everyone's surprise, except mine, it was a success. You bet your life. There he was. He was still alive. There was the voice. 
And so then I started scouring all of the uh, radio and TV logs looking, well, does he still make appearances? Is he, is he still where we could see him? Is there some way where he's out there? And then I started buying books and reading books. The thing with the radio, though, was in, in addition to listening to Groucho give his little intro on that day, they played clips of old radio programs. And they did play, after his little talk, they played a little clip from You Bet Your Life, which had aired mm -hmm. over NBC. NBC was KFI in Los Angeles. And they played a little clip of You Bet Your Life. But they also played bits from Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and W.C. Fields and Jack Benny and Fred Allen and all the, the classic radio comedians. And so I got exposed to a whole new world of like, wait, what's this? There's no such thing as radio on the radio when I turn it on now. All I get is music or talk or news. What's this stuff where they did actual comedy and, and stuff like that? I never heard of that either. And my mom explained mm -hmm. to me that that was what radio was when she grew up, was it's what you listened to. You didn't have television. You listened to comedians and dramatic shows and scary shows. You listened to them on the radio. So I thought that was really fascinating. And then the idea that Groucho Marx was part of that was really fascinating. And the more I got some books and read and found out that not only was Groucho on radio, but Chico was on radio, Harpo was on radio. It's like, wait, where do I hear this stuff? Where, where does this exist? Mm -hmm. This must exist somewhere. Well, I found out real quickly that most of it didn't exist. Uh, or if it did, nobody knew where it was. And so that was, that was kind of sad, but it was like, wait, that's a different world. So after you've seen all 13 Marx Brothers movies as a kid, and uh, at this point, You Bet Your Life had not started running on television again. This was still before mm -hmm. that. You think, well, what, what, what? There's, there's this other world out there. Where, where can we hear what they did on radio? So I started, that really started to fascinate me. Well, by 1972, I was as hooked as you could be as a Marx Brothers fan and was trying mm -hmm. to see, see all the films as many times as I could and investigate and read as much as I could. I bought all of, uh, went to bookstores. My parents took me to used bookstores. We rounded up copies of all of Groucho's books and Harpo Speaks and everything else we could find. Uh, one day I opened the newspaper and I saw a little ad that said Groucho Marx live at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles uh, for December, I think it was December 6th, 1971 or two, 70, 72, two. 72. Okay. Two. And I said to my parents, I said, we have to go to that. So being good parents that they were, they ordered up tickets and we went to see Groucho at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Now I had seen him a little bit, on television. I'd seen him on the Merv Griffin show by that point uh, with Harry Ruby, which is actually pretty good. I think I'd seen one of the Dick Cavett episodes. So I had seen, seen him as an older performer uh, a little bit, but I wasn't quite prepared for what I saw at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion because he was not in good shape that night. It was still fun to go. It was still fun mm -hmm. to see him. The audience went wild. There, there's film of this. You, they filmed it and you can see it. The audience just goes wild and cheers and, and stomps their feet and everything. But he's just not having a good day. And it mm. was kind of sad from that point. But <clears throat> it was interesting to see the reaction from the audience and all the celebrities that were there. A few rows down from us were Jack Benny and George Burns sitting together. There was all kinds of 
famous people, some of which I knew at the time and some of which I didn't, that came to see it. And so that, that was my first experience at seeing Groucho live. You know, it's just a real shame that he started doing these uh, formal performances perhaps a year or two too late. If he had done them maybe 69 or 70, we would have had a much better uh, show, you know, and a much better an evening with Groucho record for that matter. Well, there were some a year or two earlier. There's one that's out there, and I don't have this, but it is out there. There's one he did at Northwestern University in, I think, 1969 or 70 that's supposed to be, they're supposed to, uh, they recorded it. Uh, I'm not sure who has it, but I know it exists. Uh, Mm -hmm. They recorded it. And from what I understand, it's really, really good. Um, Mm. That may come out at some point in the future because it's good enough to come out. Um, yeah, and there, I think there's a couple more like that that I'm not even sure of, but I'm, something's telling me there are a couple more. So anyway, after seeing Groucho live at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, I got even more inspired and I thought, well, gee, I got to figure out a way to meet this man. And it took a while, but the first thing I did was start writing letters. And I wrote letters to anybody I could get an address on, any place I could get that was related to the Marx Brothers. So I wrote letters to Maxine Marx. I think she was the first one I wrote letters to because I got her address somewhere. Somebody gave me her address. And I got back the nicest letters from Maxine Marx. She was, I guess she wrote a lot of letters back to people that, that write to her. But I got a series of letters. I didn't just get one. I got like 10. They kept coming. And I kept writing her back and asking her more questions. And she, she kept writing me back and asking me uh, different things. Um, I got off onto Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel, the radio show with her, because I asked her if she knew if uh, in her father's collection anywhere there were recordings of Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel. And this is exactly what she told me. She said, yes, we had them all. We had had a (laughs) set of them ordered, and we had them all. She said they were on 12-inch aluminum records, and she turned out to be correct, which we'll get into later. She said they were on 12-inch raw aluminum records, and they used to sit on a shelf in our house. And she said the last thing I remember about this was in about 1951 or 52, my father gave them to me to keep because he was we were moving somewhere, moving around, and he didn't want to take them with. She said, I had them, and she said, I went off to college or somewhere. She went off somewhere and she said, I left them with my best girlfriend at the time for safekeeping. And I said, really? Where, who was that? And, and she gave me the, the woman's name and I actually looked her up in Los Angeles. She was living in Los Angeles. I could never get to her. I got to her father. Her father answered the phone. Yeah. And I said, I'm looking to speak to whoever. I said, I said, Maxine Marks told me that uh, you had these recordings of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel that she gave your daughter back in the 50s. I'm trying to find them. And he was kind of rude. And he just basically says, we don't have anything like that and hung up on me. And so that that trail went cold. Um, Oh, I thought this was going to be how you met your wife. No, no. No, met my wife at Disneyland. That's a different thing. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so that was that was Maxine. I wrote a letter to Gummo, and I got a very short letter back from Gummo, just basically saying, "Hey, I'm thanks for writing. I'm retired. I have been for years. Don't have much else to say, but uh, thanks for writing." Okay, I got a letter from Gummo. Then I wrote to Zeppo. That was interesting because <laughs> when I wrote to Zeppo. 
kind of like Maxine, I didn't just get one letter back. I got a series of letters back from Zeppo. Zeppo was, during this point that he was writing to me, was getting his official divorce from Barbara. And he was, I guess, in a real jovial mood, wanting to write to a fan. And so he was writing me these letters. He'd answer anything I asked him. I didn't know much to ask him. I wasn't very good at it at that point in life. But he would answer anything I asked him. And he kept asking me if I knew any girls he could date. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. He's asking a 14, 15-year-old <laughs> if he knows any girls he could date. Uh, Did you mention Steve Stoller's girlfriend? No, I didn't know <laughs> Steve Stoller or his girlfriend at that point. So, okay. no, did not mention those. But uh, Zeppo was uh, was very friendly and very interesting. And the, the interesting thing that goes a little bit, will kick into the future a little bit, when I first met him in person, Sometime later, I reminded him of these letters he wrote me, and he remembered them. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew you were young and all that. Yeah, I was just lonely. Just want somebody to write to. So, okay. <laughs> By the way, you know any girls? <laughs> and he did. He asked the same thing again. He said, but, but my question still stands. Do you know any girls? <laughs> well, we know this is a pattern with Zeppa. Yeah. He was happy to talk to young Marx Brothers fans who might be able to introduce him to inappropriately aged women. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a character. Um, all right, so skipping around a little bit here, in the 70s, because now we're up to, say, 73, 74, right in there, all over Los Angeles, they had, in addition to being able to watch the Marx Brothers on TV, at least once every couple of weeks there was a Marx Brothers movie on, you had revival theaters. And these revival theaters, there was two or three of them in Hollywood, there were some in Orange County, and they were running Marx Brothers films on a regular basis. It would be uh, Chaplin, Keaton, Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields, Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, if you move a little bit further on. But they were running all these these vintage cult-type movies and then vintage, vintage classic movies all the time. So you could go and you could see a, a double bill or a triple bill, Night of the Opera, Day at the Races, Monkey Business, Duck Soup, whatever. They would, they would just keep running them all the time, and they were... They were packed. Every one of those screenings I went to, there was hardly a seat in the house. The college kids were going wild. They were just eating this stuff up. There was a screening at Cal State Fullerton. Now, I wound up going to Cal State Fullerton uh, for college. But in 1973, when I was still in the early stages of either late junior high school or early junior high school, I forget what where I was at at that point. But wherever I was in 1973... Uh, they had a showing of Animal Crackers at Cal State Fullerton. Now, Animal Crackers, as we all know, or most people listening to this will know, was one film that you couldn't really see on TV. It was not on TV in America that I knew of. It certainly wasn't on TV in Los Angeles. So I saw this thing in the newspaper that said, Maury Riskin, the writer of Animal Crackers, is going to present a special screening of Animal Crackers at Cal State Fullerton in 1973. And I said to my mom, we got to go. And so we went. And actually, the the amazing thing was we, we went to the screening. They showed the movie first. We watched the film. At the end of the film, the house lights go up. And they announced that Maury Riskin was going to come up from the audience and make a speech. 
Well, Maury Riskin was sitting two people down from my mom and I, and I didn't know it, but there he was. And he stood up right next to us or right very close to us. And he walked down and he got on, he got on stage and he started answering people's questions about the film. And that was really fascinating. Um, mm. I, I, I recorded that. I still have that recording too. I wow. did it, I did it on a cheap cassette, but it, it it's listenable. Um, might maybe use some of that someday in some kind of release somewhere because it was quite good. Uh, but that was the first time yeah. I ever saw Animal Crackers. And it was a full, at least a full year before it came out um, uh, through Steve Stollier's efforts and working with Universal Studios and all that. Um, mm. There was also a theater right across the street from Disneyland in Southern California called the Old Movie Theater and Motion Picture Hall of Fame. The owner of the theater was a guy named Douglas Wright. And he was constantly running the Marx Brothers because the Marx Brothers were the most popular films at that theater. He was constantly selling out. One interesting thing that I have mentioned to everybody since, and not one person remembers this except me, so maybe somebody listening to this will know, but one day he ran Animal Crackers. And this is before the Universal thing. It's somewhere between 1973, seeing it with Maury Riskin at Cal State Fullerton, and 1974 when Steve Stollier got it out. Somewhere in that time frame, there was a short period of time where he ran Animal mm. Crackers. And the print he ran was sepia tone. It was completely sepia tone to where, and it was a gorgeous print. It looked like color. It was fascinating to watch this thing. I thought, man, if they ever shot the Marx Brothers in color, this is what it would look like. And it wasn't full color, but it was that, that sepia tone tint like you see in old photographs. And it was just beautiful. And I have never, ever anywhere else seen that print. And I don't know what happened to it. I don't know why they made a print in sepia tone. Every time I mention this, everybody says, never heard it, never seen it. But I can tell you hmm. there was one that existed in sepia tone. Now, it was the edited version because I don't remember any of the material that came out in the unedited version that we finally got to see a few years ago. It was the edited version, but it was printed in sepia tone. Really so it cool. couldn't have just been a filter on the projector? No. No. Oh. No. It was, that, it was actual sepia tone. That's very um, interesting. Perhaps we could look on newspapers.com or something and find out exactly when this was. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if he... He may have advertised in the Orange County Register. That would have been the newspaper then. I don't think he would have advertised in the Los Angeles Times because that was too expensive to advertise in. What he mainly had was a word of mouth thing where he printed up these flyers where he would list the next three or four or five weeks worth of showings, including what cartoon you were going to see, what short subject you were going to see, and what film you were going to see. And he handed these out all over the place. He handed them out at memorabilia shows. He handed them out at the other theaters. He would go to the other revival houses in Hollywood and put them on the table so that you could pick up his schedules. That I don't know that he advertised, but it would be interesting to find out, sure. This is what we like, John. One, one question yes. and a 20-minute answer. <laughs> it saves us thinking up questions. <laughs> okay, well, that's what I said. I can, I can ramble. It takes the heat so. off us. <laughs> I can ramble, so you stop me if you want me to stop rambling. But, uh, no, no, we love it. Okay. It takes the heat right off us. I'll tell you what. Why don't we just move on to how you hooked up with Groucho and Aaron? Okay, so that was, that was actually next on my little thing here. So back up a little bit. I told you I liked vintage records and vintage 
sound recordings. Um, I started, as soon as I could get my parents convinced to do this, I started asking them to take me to Goodwill stores, Salvation Army, various thrift stores, and even swap meets, uh, flea markets, anything where they had the possibility of finding vintage records. And I was buying all kinds of vintage records, mostly vaudeville and comedy stuff, because that was along the line of my interest, not so much music. Um, music stuff came later. But anyway, uh, my father saw in the newspaper, I think it was the LA Times, actually, a little ad that said, um, large collection of vintage records uh, available, uh, call this number. So I, he had me call the number. and It was a guy down in Long Beach, California, which was about 20 miles from where we lived. And I asked him if he had uh, anything like vaudeville and comedy records and all that. And he says, yeah, yeah, come on down. So my dad drove me down there and I'm going through, he had an entire house filled with records. There was a little path to the door, a little path to his bedroom, a little path to the bathroom, and everything else was just records piled everywhere. So I'm, I'm going through these and I found in one of the folders, a 12 inch record that said the four Marx brothers in duck soup. And I looked at that and I said, I don't know what this is. I have no idea what this is. And at that point, nobody else did either. This, this, this recording is now available. It's out there. You can hear it now. But at the time, nobody had ever found this thing. And what it was was a, a two-sided record with five-minute commercials on each side for the movie Duck Soup with some, some of the same dialogue and some, a little bit of alternate dialogue from the film. And so I bought it brought it home, played it, and I thought, well, this is really cool. I wonder how much more of this stuff like this exists. Okay, I had that. About six, seven months later, a friend called me and he said he had been at the Saugus swap meet, and Saugus was way far away from me. It was way out in the San Fernando Valley. And he said, I went to the Saugus swap meet, and he says, I just came home from there. I didn't buy this. I left it, but maybe I should go back and get it. He said there was a stack of metal records, and on the, the labels, it said The Circle, Groucho, Chico, Marx, and Carol Lombard. He said, do you think I should have bought that? And I said, <laughs> go back and get it now. Go back and get it. And he went back, and he got it, and he, and he, he brought it to my house, and we played it. And it was an hour-long radio broadcast from 1939 with Groucho and Chico and Cary Grant and Carol Lombard and Ronald Coleman called The Circle. It was also known as The Kellogg Show. And it, I thought it was fascinating because, wait, here's this, now that now we got Groucho and Chico on radio doing this stuff, this is fabulous, this is great. But does anybody else have this? Does this exist anywhere else? And as far as I could tell, nobody did. So there the light went off in my brain Maybe this is a way I can get to meet Groucho. How can I get to him and let him know that these programs, this duck soup thing and this Kellogg show, how can I get him to know that this exists and maybe he's got this already, maybe it's no big deal, or maybe it is, don't know. So after some little bit of calling around, I found out that his agent was a fellow named Tom Wilhite worked for Rogers and Cowan in Beverly Hills, which was a big agency to the stars. So what did I do? I picked up the phone. I called the switchboard operator at Rogers and Cowan. And I said, I'd like to be connected to Tom Wilhite, please, sounding very official. 
And, and they put me through to him. They didn't even ask any further questions. They just put me through to him. He answered the phone and I said, hi, I'm um, calling you because I know you're Groucho Marx's agent and I have something that might be of interest to Mr. Marx. I have a duck soup radio commercial record from 1933 and I have an hour-long radio broadcast from 1939 with Groucho and Chico and some other stars. What do you think of that? And he says, well, I don't really know what that is, but leave your name and number and I'll get back to you. And I thought, okay, <laughs> never going to hear from him, but I left my name and number. Two days later, sitting at home, get a phone call. Hey, this is Tom Wilhite from Rogers and Colin. Is this John Tefteller? And I said, yes. And he said, how'd you like to have lunch with Groucho on Sunday? <laughs> and I said, really? No, thanks. <laughs> I said, I don't even have a driver's license. And he laughed at that. And he goes, well, have you got a way to get here? So I called out to my father who was in the next room. And I said, dad, can we go to lunch with Groucho on Sunday? <laughs> and my dad was like, what? And I said, Dad, I have Tom Wilhite on the phone. He wants to know if we can come to Groucho's house at one o'clock Sunday for lunch. And my dad goes, you're kidding. And I said, no, no, he's on the phone. What do I tell him? And he says, okay, tell him we can go get the address. We'll go. So that was how that came about. Now, there's a, I'll back up one little bit before I get to actually going there on Sunday. In addition to the radio programs, the other thing that I started collecting very early on, I'll say right after the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion experience with Groucho, is you could go into Hollywood and you could go on Hollywood Boulevard and there was a place called Larry Edmonds Cinema Bookshop. There was another place there called Collector's Bookshop. And you could go into those two stores and there were others, but those were the two main ones. And you could ask to see their stills, their movie stills. And they would bring you out a stack of stills on whatever you wanted to see. So I would go in and I'd ask to see Marx Brothers. And they would come out with a literal stack of Marx Brothers stills. Now, these at that point were not reproductions. These were actual original MGM and Paramount stills. And you could buy them. The scene stills, just the posed scene stills, were $2 each. If they were portraits or on-the-set shots or something a little more special, they were $5 each. Well, I didn't have much money, but I thought these were super cool, especially the portraits and the on-the-set stuff where you could see the cameras and the, the other actors and the people bringing them coffee or whatever you could see in these stills. So I would take every bit of allowance I could muster and do odd jobs and whatever I could do and buy as many of these original stills as I could possibly afford to buy. I wish I was older and had more money because I saw things that I have never, ever seen again anywhere. Uh, I remember going into Collector's Bookstore. Uh, the guy that owned that was a guy named Malcolm Willits. And I got to know him on a first name basis. And so I'd say, Malcolm, bring me the monkey business file. And he would come out with this stack that was like two feet, three feet high of production stills from monkey business. And I remember going through these and, and looking at all these fabulous stills and I could only buy a few. So I would buy a few. I'd pick out the ones I thought were the most interesting and buy them and 
back the rest would go. And it, it didn't take long before they were all gone to somebody. They, they didn't last there forever. But I just remember seeing just amazing things. And I bought a selection of amazing things. So in addition to these recordings that I had, I had all these photographs. So I thought when I go to lunch with Groucho, let's bring tape recordings of the the rare audio stuff, the, the, the aluminum records and the duck soup promo. Let's bring those. So I transferred them to reel to reel because I had reel to reel equipment then, like many people did. Some people only used cassette, but I went a little bit above that. I went to reel to reel. And I transferred those to reel to reel. So I brought those along with me to the lunch, along with a nice big stack of these stills that I had purchased at these various places. Um, and we went to 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 lunch. So getting to the lunch. We get there. Uh, Steve Stolier answered the door, uh, invited us in, um, came in. They had a like a living room, sat in the living room. Erin Fleming came in from down the hall. Um, she said, okay, um, did you bring your material? And I said, yes. And she said, all right, well, we'll have lunch first. And then I'd like you to, we have a reel-to-reel tape recorder in the living room. And they did. They had a real nice sound system set up with a reel-to-reel tape recorder. So I'd like you to play some of these things for Groucho. Um, and uh, we'll do that after lunch. So she said, okay, go in and, and sit at the main table and he'll be in in a minute. So we went and we sat down. My father and I came in and sat down. And about five minutes later, he comes shuffling down the hallway and came, sat down across from me. My father sat on the other side of me and he looks up at me and he says, so are you going to school? And I said, yes, sir, I'm going to school. And he says, well, it's about time. And that, that was my first official in-person Groucho Marx joke. Um, he looked at my father and he says, what's your name? And my father said, Rex, sir. And he says, Rex, so you're a king? And my father said, no, I'm not a king. And he says, well, no, you're not. He said, you, my father had a big beard. He says, you look like Abraham Lincoln. And I said, really? I look like Abraham Lincoln? And he says, yeah, you look like Abraham Lincoln. I knew Abraham Lincoln really well. And at that point, Aaron pokes him in the shoulder and says, come on, Grouch, you're not that old. And he looked up and he says, well, sometimes I feel that old. <laughs> Was your dad a Marx Brothers fan? Um, both of my parents liked them. They didn't like like them like we like them, <laughs> like, like you know, this kind of fanatical like them, like, like people listen to this like them. They didn't have a problem in other words. Yes, but the, what they liked. They were normal people. They were normal people. And, and um, they liked watching the, the, the quiz show You Bet Your Life and all that. And they, and they found him funny, um, but they weren't, like, fanatical. So anyway, um, at the end of the lunch, we get up, go into the living room, and I put on the Duck Soup promo tape. And Groucho listens to it, doesn't say a thing, nothing, just stands there. Then I put on the Circle radio program, and I selected one particular portion for him to listen to, which was a song that he sang with Chico called I Want My 15 Bucks, which I think we're going to be hearing that later uh, at the end of the podcast. I'll spoil it now. Well, now people are just skipping ahead and not listening to <laughs> Well, they can, they can, all right, you can edit it then. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I put on this song, I Want My 15 Bucks, that he's singing with Chico. 
and his interest perked up at that, and he started singing along a little bit. And he said, I remember doing that. And when the song was over, he just looked at me and he said, well, that's all interesting, but we were a failure in radio. Nice to meet you. And he turned around and went back to his bedroom. <laughs> and that was the end of that, I thought. <laughs> but in the meantime, Erin Fleming is standing there. And she looks at me and she says, thank you very much for bringing these. That was very nice. Can we get copies of these? And I said, yes, I, 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 will, I will make you copies of these. And she said, did you bring anything else with you? And I said, yeah, I brought some stills. And I showed her the stills, and she was fascinated with those. She said, oh, we haven't seen this one before. I haven't seen this one before. And she looks up at me, and she goes, do you want a job? Hmm. <laughs> and my father looked at me like, what? And I looked at her, and I said, what do you mean, do I want a job? She goes, do you want a job? And I said, doing what? She goes, finding stuff like this. She goes, you found this, right? And I said, yeah. She said, well, there's got to be more stuff like this, right? And I said, well, there's a lot more photographs. I don't know how many more of these radio things there are out there, but there's a lot more photographs. She goes, well, I'll tell you what. We need somebody to go out and run around because she says, I can't do it. Obviously, Groucho can't do it. Uh, we need somebody to go run around to these various places wherever you got this stuff and get stuff for us because the Smithsonian has asked Groucho to give him all his memorabilia upon his death, and we want to boost up what he has. We want to make it the best collection of Marx Brothers stuff we can. So would you be willing, if we paid you uh, a whopping $3 an hour, would you be willing to go out and get material for us? And she said, we don't even need the originals. She said, I know you're a collector and all that. You like the originals? Fine. Here's the deal we'll make you. We'll pay you to go out and get this stuff. You go get it copied at a, at a, at a photo studio. You make a nice copy. You give us the copy. You keep the original. We'll pay for everything. And then you keep the originals and we'll have the copies for the Smithsonian. And I thought, boy, that's a great gig. How could I say no to that? So, but I said, but look, I don't even have a driver's license yet. I said, I'm 16 and a half. Mm -hmm. I'll have my driver's license soon. She goes, well, it's not a hurry. Just just get your driver's license or get your dad to take you and go around and get this stuff and, and, and do it. Mm -hmm. And I said, all right. And then she really floored me. Then she looks at me again. She goes, do you want another job? And I said, another job doing what? She says, well, you know, um, Every once in a while, he'll go out and he'll make an appearance somewhere, and that isn't documented, and we think it should be documented. So you've got reel-to-reel -reel recording equipment, right? And I said, yeah, I'm 16 years old, <laughs> but I did have it. I'm not, a pro I'm not a professional sound engineer, but I have the material to do it. She, she said, "If you got material, you got microphones. I'll call you when he's going to make an appearance somewhere. You bring your stuff. We'll get you all the clearances to get set up, and you record it, and that's the same deal. You keep the original tape. We'll take a copy. It goes to the Smithsonian. Everybody's happy. Okay. So I then had <laughs> two jobs, which was pretty incredible. Um, the first one was about three or four months later was at USC in Southern California. It's Univers University of Southern California. They had a luncheon at which they were going to have various celebrities reading Groucho's literary work and letters. And there's photographs of this. There's also a recording, which I did. And um, they had people like, I think Bill, Bill Marx was there. Bill played the piano for Groucho, who got up and sang at the end of all of this. Lynn Redgrave, Roddy McDowell, 
George Fenneman. I'm trying to remember who else was there, but anyway, it, it's all on tape. It exists. And they would read Groucho's stuff, and then somebody else would read another portion. They went back and forth, and it was very professionally done. And then he got up, talked a little bit, sang a couple songs with Bill at the piano. That was the first one I recorded. In between doing that, uh, she Aaron Fleming introduced me to Hector Arce, and they were just putting the finishing touches on the book, Secret Word is Groucho. And so I gave them some rare You Bet Your Life photographs that they had for that. I asked Aaron when I was there, even the first time, did Groucho have any recordings of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel? And she said, no, not that we know of. We haven't seen anything like that here. Well, one day when I was over at his house doing something, I think with Hector Arce, she said, hey, why don't you go look through Groucho's record collection? See if there's anything of value in there. You're into records. You know, you know value of records. See if we have anything valuable in there. Okay. So they had a little, it was kind of like a closet area, and he had some shelves with some records on it. It was all LPs. So I start flipping through all these LPs, and it's all Gilbert and Sullivan. Everything is Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> operettas and by a whole bunch of different people, a whole bunch of different orchestras. It was just... No written. Led Zeppelin? No, no Led Zeppelin. No Queen. No Queen. No Alice <laughs> Cooper. But he had all this uh, Gilbert and Sullivan stuff. Well, as I'm flipping through these, these records... Like, okay, it's all Gilbert and Sullivan. They're, they're interesting, but they don't have any real financial value. As I'm flipping through of them, one of them seemed much heavier than all the rest. And I thought, what's this? So I pulled the album out, and there were two records in the album instead of one. I pulled the one out, and it's not a Gilbert and Sullivan record. It's an aluminum record, raw aluminum, and it has a label on it that says Speakerphone Recording Service, 43rd Street, New York City, New York. And then in somebody's handwriting, it said, Esso Oil Show, May 8th, 1933, Bus Ride, Part 5, Part 7. Well, I knew right away what that was from my research. That was Flywheel, Shystern, Flywheel. But it was not a complete program. It was Part 5 and Part 7. And for those who don't understand how they recorded radio, and I guess we could take a minute to explain that, um, in the early days of radio, everything was done on raw aluminum. And that's a literal piece of aluminum that they would cut grooves into live as the program was being done. They ran at 78 RPM. You could not get more than about four to five minutes on one side of a 12-inch raw aluminum disc. So this had part five and part seven. It actually took eight parts to make a complete half-hour radio program at that time. Well, he only had part five and part seven, but that was more than anybody else had at that point. That was more than anybody else knew existed. So I excitedly went in and showed it to Aaron and said, look, look, I found a part of a flywheel show. And she was like, great, go get it transferred so we can hear it. So she handed it to me and said, here, take it, go, get it, get it done. <laughs> so I had to go find somebody who could play it because a raw aluminum disc, if you play it with a normal diamond needle, like is on a regular record player, you damage it. They were not meant to be played with a diamond needle. They were meant to be played with something softer. In fact, the actual thing you're supposed to play them with is a bamboo needle, literally made out of a slice of bamboo. And you play that, and it's soft enough 
to not damage the metal. If you play a diamond, which is hard on an aluminum surface, it damages the metal surface. So you don't want to play them that. You have to get a, a bamboo needle. So I had to find somebody with a bamboo needle that could play this thing. Anyway, got it transferred, listened to it. Unfortunately, the portions that he had were one big long commercial for Esso Oil, followed by a musical bridge to the next scene. And then on the other side of it, that was side one, side five, side seven was the very ending of whatever skit they were doing, followed by another long musical bridge. So really, mm-hmm. out of the 10 minutes of Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, there was maybe two, three minutes of Marx Brothers, and the rest was this music and commercial for Esso Oil. But it existed. Finally, it existed. You could hear something from that program. Um, so that, that was just a little foreshadowing of things to come. Mm-hmm. Um, after The Secret Word is Groucho was wrapped up, the next thing we worked on in between these live performances of which there were not many, but there were some, was the Groucho file. Um, That was fun because during those sessions, what we would do is, uh, what I would do anyway, is bring Groucho rare photographs and things from candids from the movies or things of him, whatever I could find that was unusual, and put them in front of him and just have him look at them. Sometimes he would make comments about him, and sometimes he wouldn't. It would depend on who was in the picture and what he could remember about it. But it was a great way, and, and, and Hector discovered this right away too, it was a great way to get him memory jogged to, to come up with great stories about working with different people and whatever. So that was fun to do that. He also had a screening room in his house. There was a, a, a little area where you could go. It was right off the kitchen, and they had theater seats in it and a big screen and they could run movies in there. And you could sit there and you could watch Duck Soup or Night at the Opera or whatever, and he would come in and sit down and make comments while the films were going. And some of that was pretty darn fascinating. I was only there for a couple of them, but they were pretty darn fascinating. Uh, One of the ones I sat with him and watched was the Perry Como show. He had TV films as well. And there was a Perry Como show from 1950-something that he made an appearance on. So the lights go out, sitting next to him. Here comes Perry Como singing a song. And Groucho leans over to me and says, Perry Como was a great singer when he was awake. (laughs) And people who don't know Perry Como did not get that joke. But if you know Perry Como, Perry Como had this like really sleepy look about him. And as SCTV fans know. Yeah, okay. If somebody out there knows, you have to be old enough to know Perry Como. But anyway, that was an example of some things that that happened. Um, I'm we brought up, or I brought up Alice Cooper and um, Queen. Yeah. Um, one day, I was at Groucho's house. Um, I had arrived early. There was nobody else there except he was in the back bedroom. Doorbell rings. Nobody else answered the door, so I answered the door. Go up and answer the door. Open the door. It's Alice Cooper standing there. <laughs> and I knew who he was because I wasn't a big rock and roll fan. I wasn't particularly a fan of his, but he has a very distinct look to him. I knew who he was. So he looks at me and he says, can Groucho come out and play? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, but I'll go ask him. 
<laughs> Play what? Rhythm guitar? <laughs> I, cl- I closed the door and I went walking back to Groucho's bedroom. I walked in and I said, Groucho, there's a man named Alice Cooper at the door. Wants to know if you can come out and play. And he looks up from his bed and he says, Alice who? And I said, Alice Cooper. <laughs> and he says, is she pretty? <laughs> and I said, Alice Cooper, no. <laughs> Alice Cooper is a man. And he got this quizzical look on his face and he goes, a man? A man named Alice. And I said, yes, Alice Cooper. He's a rock and roll star. He's at the door, and I left him there. He wants to know if you can come out and play. Again, a quizzical look. And he says, well, all right, send him in. So I walked back to the door. I let Alice Cooper back in. He went back. They spent whatever time they spent. Alice Cooper, Aaron Fleming showed up later and let him out. And that's all I know that happened. I don't know what they talked about. So, So hang on, hang on, hang on. So if he didn't know the name Alice Cooper... That might have been the first time they met. and it's. I don't know if it was or wasn't. I just know that it happened. <laughs> it could be your fault. <laughs> it could be all my fault. But I do know there's lots of pictures of them together, and he looks pretty yeah. happy in a lot of those pictures. <laughs> so they had some kind of camaraderie going. The interesting thing with Erin Fleming, and we can talk about her if you want to. It's up to you. I don't have a whole lot to say. But the interesting thing about Erin Fleming is, she surrounded herself with a lot of very young people. She also insisted, and that's, I guess, how I got the job, that Groucho be surrounded by a lot of very young people. I don't know if it was because she thought that having a lot of young people around him would keep him young or what the actual psychological purpose of it was, but everybody was pretty young. I was 16, 17. Uh, Steve Stolyer was a couple years older than I was. There was a fellow named Henry Golis who was going to college at the time. Uh, Hector Arce wasn't that old. He was, I guess, in his early 40s at that time. But he was he was there as a, as a book writer, not as a, a, a constant house guest. But anyway, she had lots of young people around her. And she had lots of young celebrities around her and around Groucho. Now, whether this was because she wanted to hobnob with all these people and therefore he had to or what, I don't really know all the psychological aspects of it. All I know is there was always a lot of young people there. Did you meet Bud Court? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Bud Court was there. Um, and Carol Kane, um, Elliot Gould. There were, there were a, whole, a whole slew of them that would, that would show up. I don't know. I don't know what the purpose of it was. I think your your take on Aaron is is very interesting. As you know, we we spoke on the phone a, a little while ago, and you were telling me some things about Aaron. And okay. I think it, it, it's very interesting. I, I think our, our Facebook group has kind of shifted the perception of Erin. For a long time, she was purely a, a pantomime demon, and obviously that side of her is very very real. But she was very much a two-sided person. And not only was she responsible for keeping Groucho kind of a, a, a live figure as an entertainer, but as, as you've just told us, it wasn't Groucho that set you on this quest to, to find all the audio. It was her. So, so she is very much a person with two sides. Yeah. Um, my personal experiences with her were all very, very positive. I never saw her angry. She never Mm -hmm. blew up at me. She never blew up at anybody in my 
presence. Um, mm-hmm. She was over the top nice to me. I couldn't figure out why was she why she was so nice to me. She would actually mm-hmm. call me at home and ask me for dating advice. Um, <laughs> I, I was seventeen years old, and she was dating Ed Bagley Jr. And she was she was calling me, asking me for dating advice about Ed Begley Jr. And I said, Aaron, number one, I don't know Ed Begley Jr. I don't know how to give you dating advice on Ed Begley Jr. She says, Yeah, but you're you're a young man. You 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 you'll have some insights. It, it, it was a bizarre conversation, but she was always nice to me. Now, I know there's horror stories, and I don't doubt anybody's horror stories. I don't want to be the one here saying that everybody else is wrong and I'm right and she was this wonderful person. All I can say is she was always nice to me. Were you ever called as a witness or to, to pose any information? No. No? No. No. No, uh, she made a comment to some interviewer somewhere in which my name came up and she said, oh, yeah, he's the only one that I worked with then that didn't want something from Groucho. Everybody wanted something from Groucho and John Tefteller didn't. He was just nice. And that was a nice thing for her to say. And that's on tape somewhere, but I, I don't know where. But anyway, I had a great relationship with her. Even to the point of dating advice. So there you go. <laughs> uh, do you remember the substance of that conversation? Were you able to help Erin with her? Uh, I really, I really life? don't. No, I didn't even have a girlfriend myself at the time. So it's like I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so you've got you've got Zeppo in one ear, yeah, Erin in the other. It's kind of a, a dating expert. A dating expert. Yeah, sure. Me, great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. When you were out looking at recordings or photographs, whatever else you were finding, did they give you a budget? Did you have to call and say, well, I found this, but it's going to cost $400. No, no, no. I never had a budget. I will tell you one thing. She, she, She basically would say yes to anything. And I got a check for anything I submitted except for one thing, which I did not buy. I was smart enough not to buy it. And I didn't have the money. Um, I called her from a flea market uh, in Southern California because there was an antique dealer at the flea market that had in a display case a stack of stock certificates for Marx Brothers Incorporated, which was (laughs) the company that they formed when they were thinking about leaving Paramount or had left Paramount. It was right in between Paramount and A Night at the Opera signing with MGM, they formed a company and they called it Marx Brothers Incorporated and they issued stock certificates of this thing. Mm -hmm. And there was a stack of them in this display case. And I asked the guy who was selling them how much he wanted for them. And he said, $12,000. And I thought, $12,000? I mean, I'd never heard of these things. I didn't know anything about a lot of stuff we know now uh, that I know now and you guys know now. We didn't know in 1973, 74, 75. And you said, Zeppo, I'm not paying that. <laughs> so, 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 no. So I called her. Uh, I went to a payphone and I called her from the flea market. And I said, Aaron, there's this guy with these stock certificates for Marx Brothers Incorporated. He wants $12,000 for it. What do I do? And she says, no, no, that's insane. We're not paying $12,000. to Tell him to keep the damn things. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where their stock certificates went. They have never surfaced. And I would have thought that if 
this was an antique dealer who had some knowledge of this type of thing and had that kind mm -hmm. of a price on them, I would have thought they would have surfaced in the years since. They have never surfaced. I've never seen them again. But I held them in my hands. They existed, and they were signed by the brothers and everything. It was really cool, but no. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing she refused to pay for. Everything else <laughs> she paid for. Uh, I know one time, I'll give you one more quick one. There was a, a store opened up on Melrose in Hollywood, and I went to the grand opening. It was called Hollywood's Home of the Stars Memorabilia Shop. I went to the grand opening. Mm -hmm. It was owned by a guy named Ken Hollywood, who had been <laughs> for 40 years the guard at the front gates at MGM. And so he had collected memorabilia during all this time. He was the guard at the front gates at MGM. And he opened this little memorabilia shop on Melrose. And I went there opening day, walked in, and I said, hi, um, I'm looking for stills of the Marx Brothers. What might you have? And he says, over there, key books for a night at the opera and day at the races. A key book, when the films were shot, they had multiple, usually two or three different photographers on the set shooting different things when the films were shot. At the end of production, those photographers would put together what's called a key book. And it was a big, thick, like photo album. Each photo would have three holes on the outer edge. If you've seen original stills, sometimes you see them where there's three holes on the, on the, on one side. Those are key book mm -hmm. stills because they had been in a key book. You would get a complete set of stills that were photographed for that film by each of the photographers at the end of production called a key book set. And each of the stars would get one. Everybody that was in the film that wanted one would get one. Well, this guy had somehow gotten key book stills on Night at the Opera and Day at the Races. So this was during when we were working on the Groucho file. So I'm sitting in this store and I'm looking at images from the set of A Night at the Opera that nobody had ever seen before. They'd never been available. And I, I called Aaron on the phone and I said, Aaron, <laughs> I'm looking at key book stills from Night at the Opera and Day at the Races do you want all these? She says, how much are they? And I said, well, I think they're going to be like two, three, four, five dollars a piece, depending on how many we buy. And she says, yeah, buy them all. And we did. We bought these whole key book <laughs> sets of Night at the Opera and Day at the Races. Um, mm. And they, some of those images, I don't know if they've ever come out. I didn't copy all of them. I have a few, but I didn't copy all of them. But I think they do exist somewhere. I think... Um, Joe Adamson would know that. I think they're at the Academy Library in Beverly Hills. So I would assume these would contain photos of scenes that were shot but uh, didn't make it into the finished film. Uh, so we could perhaps settle this Dr. Hackenbush thing uh, once and for all. I was 16, 17 at the time. I didn't even mm -hmm. think of all of that then. There is so mm -hmm. much that I know now that I wish I knew then that I could have asked, that I could have found out about. But no, mm -hmm. at the time, I don't remember any of that, no. So with the Night at the Opera material then, did you never see a still from that, that opening musical number that's now lost? If I did, and I can't say one way or the other because there were so many stills, I mm. don't remember. I just don't remember. Because e even a still of that now would be I know. fabulous. Well, yeah. that should be at the Academy Library. Um, I, I went to the Academy Library a couple of years ago. I wasn't going there to look at movie stills. I was going there for radio material. And they didn't have mm -hmm. much that I didn't have, but they had a few things, and I got copies mm -hmm. of those for the radio book. But um, I didn't look at the film stills. But there are right. piles and piles of film stills there, and I'm sh 
pretty sure that the key books for Night at the Opera and Day at the Races would be there and would answer these questions. But somebody has to physically go there. They don't let anything out of the building. You have to physically go there. You cannot take anything in there other than a pencil and a piece of paper. Uh, it's a real restricted environment uh, to, to do that. But you can access it. So I'll have to go again and I can look. I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure there's still so much. I mean, we, we're we're used to seeing the same stills over and over again in books, and I always assumed that was because that's what there was. But it wasn't. You know, it's was just because it was that was the easiest thing was just to keep reproducing the same ones. But, well, it was, you know, yeah. And I've been recently collect- we've seen there's just so much more. Yeah, and I'm sure there still is. I've been collecting Marx stills since 1971, 72. In the early 80s, I sold a bunch of stuff a lot of what I had, not the audio stuff mostly, but stills and things to to start a business dealing in rare records. I sold most everything that I had. And so a lot of my early stuff went away, but mm. I've since collected a lot more. And I probably have two or 3,000 different Mark stills now. And a lot of it is stuff that hasn't been seen. But then every once in a while, I'll look on the, the, the council and there'll be one. And, oh, yeah, okay. That's one I didn't think anybody else had, but there it is. <laughs> uh, so they do mm-hmm. come up. They made more copies of those things than you would think. They did yeah. make quite a number of them, and they were to be used for publicity purposes. So they were they were not copyrighted for the most part or anything. They were just out there. They wanted them to be seen. So they do pop up. Um, not so much anymore. A lot of the major photo archives that did have them have converted to digital. And in converting to digital, they're making one gigantic mistake and that is they're selling off all the originals. And I, 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 it's a gigantic mistake on their part. It's very good for me because I can buy the originals, and I have been. Um, but that whole digital world is very scary because you can make a very nice digital reproduction of a still, and then your hard drive fails, and you lose it. And if you don't have a way to go back to that or a way to repair the hard drive, that still is gone. So these archives that are converting all this stuff to digital and then thinking, oh, we're going to have this forever, maybe, if they're really careful and they keep making transfers of hard drives to hard drives, yeah, they'll have them. But the minute they get lax and one of those hard drives fails and those images go away, they don't have them anymore. Yeah, I, I read a terrifying book about how uh, so many libraries are um, digitizing uh, books and, and periodicals and actually destroying them in the process. Yes. Because in order to get a, a clean shot of the page, they right. actually break the, break the things apart and then they throw them out. They yeah. throw them out. Yeah. And the terrible thing with that is if you're trying to get a high-quality reproduction, these archives, most of them are not taking high-quality images they're taking mm-hmm. low-resolution JPEGs because that's what fits on their hard drive. If they started taking really super high-quality reproductions of this stuff, they would be filling up way more hard drives and spending way more money. So they go the cheap route. They take low-resolution JPEGs, and then when they throw out the originals, there's no way to go back. And it drives me insane because they're just destroying history in the, under the guise of making it available in a modern world. Very terrible. I try to buy up all that stuff whenever I can. Whenever I see these photographic archives dumping their photos, if they've got original photos and I can afford to buy them, I buy them. Because uh, someday mm-hmm. those, those won't exist anywhere else except my house. And that's sad, <laughs> but at least they'll exist. I will keep them as long as I can. 
And any of our listeners who want to see them, would you give your address so that we can have them stop? <laughs> well, that's not out of the question if anybody wants to come to Grants Pass, Oregon, but I get very few visitors, I can tell you that. I did have one one guy came last year. He came from Sacramento, California, which is not as far as you'd think. It's like six hours from Grants Pass. He came and he spent an entire two days just looking at photographs. Because it takes a while to go through several thousand stills. And I was playing him radio stuff and different things as well. So I kept him entertained for a full two days. He was really thrilled. And anybody else, if you want to make an appointment and come to Grants Pass, Oregon, the archives is not closed. It is available, but you got to come here. So did you discuss with Groucho about what was going to become of all this audio uh, when he passed? Yeah, at, at at one point when all of this was coming together and um, we were getting a lot of different things, he started to get into it a little bit. He cared about his legacy. He cared about the mm-hmm. idea that in the future, people would be able to see You Bet Your Life. People would be able to listen to some of the things he had done on radio and whatever. So even though he felt personally he was a flop on radio, he did like the idea that we were going out of our way to search out all this stuff and preserve it. And after a whole bunch of it had been done, I I remember one day um, playing something for him, and I don't remember what it was. But after after it was over, he just looked up at me and he said, well, I hope you're going to make all this available someday. Not that I'll be here to hear it, but somebody will like it. Maybe. I still think we were terrible. And that, that was basically, basically, he, he was, he wanted so badly, or bad, whatever the proper English is, to be a success on radio. He, he saw Jack Benny being a success. He saw Fred Allen. He saw all, Jimmy Durante. He saw all these people that were his friends that were wildly successful on radio. And every show that he was involved with in the 30s became a, a failure. It just didn't last more than a season. Uh, And even into the 40s, he was reduced to guest appearances here, there, and everywhere. Mm. And then he got Blue Ribbon Town, and that lasted about a year. Uh, He just couldn't couldn't get the format right until You Bet Your Life came along in 1947, and then they got it right. And it began as a radio show and continued on into television. But yeah, I, I I did make it a point to tell him that I would be the caretaker of all this stuff, but that at some point it was all going to come out. Now, there's some, there's some problems, or there were some problems with all of this. The Marx Brothers estates, until somewhat recently, did not get along. Uh, you had Groucho Marx Productions, which was basically a lawyer who started this with Aaron Fleming and Groucho signed off on it. And then you had the estates of Harpo and the estates of Chico separate. All of this was going on all throughout the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, into the 2000s, to where there was this constant butting of heads and bickering over what could get done and what couldn't get done. And I always knew, as all this was going on, that someday it would be all over. And I hoped that I lived long enough to see it be all over, and that when it was all over, I could get all this radio stuff out without having all this argument and problem over, well, I have the rights to this, but you don't have the rights to that, and all this stuff. And so in the last few years, 
it's all been pretty well ironed out and now there's light at the end of the tunnel that things can happen and there are things happening as you've seen in recent year last year or two mm-hmm. some things are, are coming t- coming out and being announced and coming together because the estates are now pretty much on the same page so things will happen um one one little quick personal story on my 18th birthday Everybody was asking me, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for your birthday? And at that point, I thought that I was the luckiest guy around because I had what I wanted for my birthday. I had a job working for Groucho Marx. What more could one ask for? So I thought about it and thought about it. And finally, I thought, okay, I know what I want. I want to go to Groucho's house on my 18th birthday. And I want to shake his hand and have him wish me a happy birthday. So I did just that. I got in the car. I drove to his house. Uh, Aaron wasn't there. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it was just the housekeeper. It was a Sunday. And they let me in. And I walked back to his bedroom. And he was sitting in the bed reading. And he looked up and he says, what are you doing here? Are you working today? And I said, no, no, I'm not working today. I said, today's a special day. Really? <laughs> and I said, yeah, today's my birthday. No. And I said, okay. So people asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And the only thing I could come up with that I would really like is I would like for you to shake my hand and wish me a happy birthday. And he looked up and he smiled, stuck out his hand, shook my hand and said, happy birthday. And I said, fine, I'm done. I shall leave now. That was it. End of story. But I just thought that was a, that's a special moment for me. So. What did you feel like around him, John? I, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I'm in my 40s, and I feel a little nervous talking to somebody who met Groucho. So uh, when you were 16, did you feel intimidated? Did you feel in awe of, of him? Well, in awe, yes, but very aware of his frailty. Mm-hmm. Um, if you stood in his presence during that time, even as a 16-year-old or 17-year-old who wasn't really that aware of what old age actually looks like, it mm. was old age right in front of you. Very yeah. old age. Um, and he wasn't a big man either, was no, he? No, very he small. I'm small six foot, I'm six foot one, and he came up to mm. be, maybe my yeah. shoulder. Um, yeah, very, very, very thin, uh, very frail. He moved very, very slowly. His voice was very... I mean, he had to strain to talk in a loud voice. Most of it was kind of a whisper. I mean, you could hear it, especially if you strained, you could hear it, but it was a pretty much of a, of a loud whisper. Um, his hearing was okay because he had a hearing aid, uh, but if he didn't turn the hearing aid on, you'd have to shout. Um, and, and so I occasionally the hearing aid would not be on. And that's the only time I heard, heard Aaron shouting at him was shouting at him to turn on his hearing aid. So that, that's okay. <laughs> It was a matter of wondering whether or not on the day you would see him, he would be mentally alert enough that you would actually have a pleasant experience. Now, I can't say I never had an unpleasant experience. He was always nice. He was always trying to be funny, sometimes trying, sometimes really funny. But you had to be aware that this was a very old man with a lot of physical problems. Mentally, I don't think there were as many problems as some people think. He would have days where he would have trouble remembering certain things, yes, but he was pretty darn sharp. Um, I think it was Steve Stolyer or somebody mentioned it was like running a, a car on three cylinders instead of four. 
he didn't have quite mm-hmm. that fourth cylinder where it was all go, but three cylinder Groucho was still pretty good. Did you have much interaction with uh, Gummo and Zeppo? Just a little bit. Um, Gummo and Zeppo came to um, in March of 1976. There was a dinner as a benefit at the Beverly Hills Hotel for something called the Sun Air Foundation. Um, I don't quite know what it was. I guess they told me at the time, but I don't remember. All I know is that they had a little reception before it. Zeppo had come in from Palm Springs with Gummo. That's when I remember talking to Zeppo about the letters that he had sent me earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, Lucille Ball, I think, was there. Um, Georgie Jessel, Red Buttons, Tony Martin, of all people. (laughs) to sing Tenement Symphony, which I think he did. Uh, <laughs> Twice. <laughs> he, he sang something at this thing. I, maybe, it was, maybe it wasn't Tenement Symphony. I don't know. Somebody over I can I can play the tape and see what he sang. But anyway. Sing why uh, yourself. Yeah, there was that. Um, there was one the following month at the Maskers Club in Hollywood. Do you guys know what the Maskers Club was? Okay. No. Maskers Club was sort of like the Friars Club. But it was more, the Friars Club was more for comedians, and the Maskers Club was more for actors, and it was mostly a West Coast thing. They may have had an East Coast chapter, I don't know, but there was a West Coast chapter, the Maskers Club. And the Maskers Club honored Groucho one night, um, and they had Carol O'Connor, Ray Bolger, Freddie Prinze, Hal Cantor was the Master of Ceremonies, and Edie Adams was there, and a few other people. Anyway, um, that was an interesting one. Um, The best one, the absolute best one that I ever got to go to and record is unfortunately the worst sounding one because they wouldn't let me anywhere near the stage with a microphone. So I had to record from the back of the room, but there is a theater group in Costa Mesa, California called the South coast repertory theater. Um, I don't know if they're active now, but they were in the seventies and they put on a benefit for the theater group, and they invited Groucho to be the guest for the benefit. And they just let him take questions from the audience. And I don't know what happened that night, but of all the times that I was ever with him in his presence, (laughs) he was on fire that night. It was like 50 years had washed away. Um, he had, he had his own microphone. And at one point, if you, uh, you'll all recall in monkey business, when they're out on the veranda, he's out on the veranda with Thelma Todd and he starts howling like a tomcat. At one point during this thing at the South coast repertory theater, he picks up that microphone and he starts doing that howl. into the microphone and i was like sitting back just watching this going oh my god i'm back in 1931 and and he was just great that night everybody that asked him a question got a funny snappy answer It, it was fabulous that was the best one i was at I want to get into the weeds here about these recordings. Okay, go in the weeds. You know, with all these uh, radio shows from back in the day, does anything with Zeppo exist? There, no. Um, Zeppo had a very brief radio show in 1932. I, I can tell you a couple things. Um, there were some broadcasts that the Marx Brothers appeared in in the 20s that should they exist, and they don't, because almost nothing was recorded in the 20s. They didn't mm. uh, just... To give you an idea of the history of radio recording, 
Very little was recorded in the 20s. By 1929, a few things here and there. Um, the first radio recordings of any kind of substantive nature was done in the early 30s. So even Flywheel, mm -hmm. Shester and Flywheel, 32, 33, that's right on the cusp of when things were and weren't recorded. Um, they just didn't do it. It wasn't something that was done until that early 30s period. The, the, the only one that I feel from the early 30s, other than Flywheel, that would have been stunning had it happened, didn't happen. And the only way it's been discovered is because uh, Jack Benny had recorded all of his programs. He had everything recorded from day one uh, back to the early 30s. And people have been, those have been, most of them have been transferred now and people have heard them. And at the end of one of the Jack Benny shows in October or November of 1932, he says, next week's guests will be the four Marx brothers. Mm. And I heard that and I went, oh, <laughs> does that mm. exist? But then you go to the next week's recording and Jack comes on and says, sorry, due to a scheduling conflict, the Marx Brothers ah. are unable to appear. But that would have been incredible to hear the four of them on the radio with Jack Benny in 1932. There is a recording of Chico in 1933 on the Burns and Allen show that exists. Uh, and then we go to Flywheel after that. Uh, there's nothing before that. There, they did things before that. There's some real interesting notations of things that were done in the 20s, but none of it exists. Um, you one, mentioned the Zeppo radio show? Yeah, there, was, there's a, he sang. He had a singing, 15-minute singing radio show over KNX Radio Los Angeles during the production of Horse Feathers. So it makes perfect sense that that's him singing in Horse Feathers oh, for people oh. who think it's not. I yeah, tell it you, would it's really got settle to be the, that issue, wouldn't it? Yeah. Got to be him, Fine. but there's no recording that's known. Now, his family could have had one. I remember asking Zeppo when I saw him at that Sun Air Foundation dinner in March of 1976 if he had any recordings of the Marx Brothers, and he said no, he didn't. So, he, so the problem is sometimes they have them and they don't know they have them, like Groucho saying there's no flywheel, shyster flywheel here, and then going in the closet and finding one piece of one. So, yeah, you, you just never know because they that stuff was not considered important to them. So is that is that the holy grail? I mean, one, one question that I had for, prepared for you is: is there what is the one thing that you know was recorded that you don't have that you would most want to have? Okay, I'll, I'll say it. It'll send everybody off looking for it, and maybe they'll find it. <laughs> um, I have a portion of it, but I don't have the complete program. The program is the. Um, the Camel Caravan, starring Benny Goodman, from 1936, September 1st, 1936. And on that September 1st, 1936 program is where they did the skit written for them allegedly by Al Bosberg, but Al Bosberg mm. stole it from two other uh, writers. Ah, uh, yes. And it yeah. resulted in a plagiarism suit. So that, that, is, that recording is not... Is lost. Well, it, I don't I, know that it's lost. I mean, I'll, I'll uh, say some things here that I probably shouldn't, but I will. Um, I have a piece of it. The piece I have is when the skit was finished, they switch to Harpo because it was billed as an appearance by the, the three Marx brothers and Harpo doesn't appear in the skit. So when the skit is finished, they switch to Harpo and the recording starts there. 
where Harpo starts honking his horn and then goes and plays the same song he plays in A Night at the Opera, I forget, Alone, I guess it is. He plays his rendition of Alone, and then you hear the audience go, and then you say, thank you, everybody, good night, and the show's over. That portion exists. The mm-hmm. earlier portion with the two brothers doing the skit, I know where it was, and I'm, I'm going to tell this story. You can edit this out if you want to, because it's, it, it's really into the weeds. Now, if you want to go really into the weeds, you can we, leave it in. We love yeah. weeds. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. We're all on weed. Okay. <laughs> Here's the story. Um, Camel Cigarettes was the sponsor of the program. It was the Benny Goodman show. Benny Goodman was off that night uh, for whatever reason and turned the program over to the Marx Brothers. That was the joke. Okay. Benny Goodman's taking the night off. The Marx Brothers are taking over the program. There are lots and lots of camel caravan shows available out there. They exist. The recordings that the transfers come from were in the possession of camel cigarettes in um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I talked to a guy who was in his 90s, and this was back in the 90s, who was a huge Benny Goodman fan. And he told me that he had gone to Winston-Salem, that he had asked the cigarette company if he could have access to the recordings, and they gave him access to this wall of recordings of Benny Goodman's Camel Caravan. He made reel-to-reel transfers of every darn one of those shows, except the one with the Marx Brothers. He didn't do it because Benny Goodman wasn't on it. And he was a Benny Goodman fan, so he didn't want it. He didn't copy it, but he told me it was there. So my wife and I went to Winston-Salem. Now, this was some years later. Uh, We went to Winston-Salem. We go to the cigarette company. They have a bulletproof glass window, a security guard at the front of the building. I came with carrying with me a binder containing photographs of everything I had from that Camel Caravan show, because there's pictures from the show, and there's a lot of pictures from the lawsuit and everything that resulted in it. I had a binder with all these things. So I was prepared, and I showed the guard at the entrance of this building this binder, and I said, I need to talk to somebody in this building because supposedly in this building, I was told by an old guy, you have still the recordings of the program that's referred to in these pictures, and I need to talk to somebody about being able to get that copy. Well, the guard was no help. He said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, I have no appointment. I need to talk to somebody who would know where this, these recordings would be located. They were here back in the late 90s. They should still be here unless you threw them all away. They should still be here somewhere. Well, he gets on the phone, and I don't know who he was talking to, but whoever he was talking to, when he hung up the phone, he says, you have to leave. And I said, I have to leave? Why? He says, well, we don't want anything to do with this. And I said, well, All I'm asking is who I can talk to. He says, yeah, you have to call a phone number. And he gave me a phone number. I said, well, let me go outside and make the call. So I go outside and I call and I get an operator in Indiana for the the representative of the company in Indiana. And the operator says, who do you wish to speak to? 
And I said, I'm, I'm in Winston-Salem. I wish to speak to somebody in this building in Winston-Salem. I'm looking for a recording of the Marx Brothers on the Benny Goodman Camel Caravan in 1936 that's in this building somewhere. Who do I talk to? Oh, no, you have to tell us who you need to talk to. Apparently, what I was able to find out, because we literally were asked to leave and they got no further. They locked the doors. They wouldn't let me back in. Apparently, because there's so many people that show up to these cigarette companies with all kinds of fake reasons to serve subpoenas on their executives over their uncle dying of lung cancer, no one gets into those buildings unless you've got some kind of an appointment with somebody. And you can't get an appointment with somebody unless you can talk to somebody that will talk. It was like going round and round in circles. I have not mm -hmm. been able to get anywhere with this. I'm going to try to see if I can come up with another another run at it at some point. But in the meantime, it's now been almost 20 years. They may have thrown all this stuff out. I don't know. I hope mm. not. So it may not exist. But if it does, that's where it would be. Well, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> Camel Cigarette Executives. Yeah, they're not listening. They're not listening. This, this guy's uh, on the level. <laughs> well, here's the thing with the radio recordings that a lot of people don't understand. Nobody had tape recorders back in the 30s and 40s. Tape recording didn't come in on a home use basis until the 50s. Very, very few, only the very wealthy, had the ability to make a recording at all off radio. Uh, you could buy, for a lot of money, a home recording unit where you could stick a microphone up to the radio and make a recording of a radio show. But those were expensive. Most people didn't have them. The only recordings that were done were by the networks themselves or the sponsors or the agencies that handled the show. Or if you were Jack Benny or Groucho Marx or anybody, you could hire recordings made by one of these outside recording agencies. So for every radio program that aired, let's say back in the 30s, if we are lucky, and that's a big if, there were three or four recordings made of it. Three or four. Mm -hmm. And that's 80 years ago now. Where did they go? Most of them were thrown out. Most of them were destroyed. Uh, and, and a lot of them, there was only one. They made one and that was it. And when that one is gone, it's gone. And that was what was most fascinating to me about all this stuff is how do you find that one recording? How do you find that one of four? Where could it be? And how do you trace it? So let's finish up your time with Groucho. Were you there until the very end? Um, after the, um, the birthday wishes in December of 1976 for my 18th birthday, the last thing that he did publicly was he appeared in Hollywood for the Motion Picture Hall of Fame Award. Now, flashback to earlier in what we talked about, the Motion Picture Hall of Fame, that little theater across the street from Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Douglas mm -hmm. Wright had figured out that in addition to having his theater going, he might get more publicity for his theater if he could hold a series of events in Hollywood where he would invite some old timers, so to speak, to come in and get the Motion Picture Hall of Fame Award because he had copyrighted, I think he copyrighted the name, the Motion Picture Hall of Fame. And so that sounds really big and really, really special. So to tell somebody uh, you're going to get the Motion Picture Hall of Fame Award, hey, 
That sounds like the Academy Award. Maybe not quite as good, but it mm -hmm. sounds like it's up there. And so he had this name copyrighted. So he was having these little events in Hollywood where he was giving out to different stars the Motion Picture Hall of Fame Award. And somehow Aaron Fleming agreed <laughs> that Groucho would show up at this Motion Picture Hall of Fame Award dinner. And he did. And that was the last one. Uh, there's a little bit of footage of it, um, some news, news footage of it um, that you can see. I think it's online somewhere. And I did re record the whole thing. That was the last one. By now, by now we're talking about mid-January or end of January 1977. He was not in any kind of condition to go out and do any more of these things. And we all knew it. It was like, no, that, that's, that's not going to work. Even though I know Aaron would still encourage him. That's one thing she was very good at was encouraging him to practice the piano, to continue to sing, to, con I, 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 psychologically, it, it might be something she was trying to do to keep him alive is keep playing, keep anticipating doing the next performance, even though, <laughs> You didn't want him to do the next performance, but keep alive by, by still sitting at your piano and play your songs and sing for your guests and things like that. It was a, a way I think she used to keep him alive. So we, we all knew that that, that was nothing was going to happen after that. So during that period between January of 77 until his death, it was basically Hector Arce who was sitting with him on a fairly regular basis, uh, working on the biography that became Hector's biography of Groucho called, I believe, just Groucho. Uh, and I spent some time helping him with that. Um, so instead of recording things, I was doing that kind of thing and still looking for memorabilia because the Smithsonian thing was still looming in the background. So we were still, we were still looking. Uh, the last time I saw Groucho was in the hospital about three weeks before he died. Aaron had called and invited me to basically come and say goodbye. And I, we all kind of knew that that's what was going to happen. And so she invited me to come say goodbye and I went and he was just, but again, how, how, how lovely that, that she thought that you would be somebody that would want to do that. Yes. That's why I say yeah, yeah. she was nothing uh, but nice to me. Uh, so, uh. Okay. Well, I can't say anything bad. I know there are bad things, but not uh, from me. Uh. Uh, and so I did. I came in, I shook his hand, I thanked him for everything, thanked him for giving me the opportunity to work for him, and assured him that the radio stuff would come out at some point. And so hmm. there you go. That was the end of that. He passed away a few weeks later, and I spent the rest of my time helping Hector finish his book. Um, then shortly after that, there was Bob Whitey and Joe Adamson was working on their Marx Brothers uh, in a nutshell. Never heard of them. Yeah, those guys. Never heard of them. <laughs> Bob Whitey lived in Fullerton, California, which was two little towns over from La Mirada, where I was living. And I remember seeing a newspaper article in our local La Mirada newspaper, which showed Bob Whitey dressed as Groucho with a couple other people dressed as Chico and Harpo. And they said that these high school students were doing their imitation of the Marx Brothers. Well, I picked mm. up the telephone book and I looked up Whitey in Fullerton, California. It was his father's phone number, but called it. He, his father answered the phone. He put me on with Bob Whitey. I invited them over and we became friends and we've been friends ever since. So that's how I met mm. Mr. Whitey. So you saw that photo? The photo of what? The one of him and his friends doing the Marxes. 
Oh, it was. It, oh, yeah. You know, I don't know if I have that. But you know, he did that home movie he talked about on the podcast. But uh, he said he's never going to bring that out. So we got to find the next best thing. I saw the movie too. <laughs> he showed me the movie. I don't remember it well, but I know he showed me the movie. The photo was printed in, I believe it was called the Lamarada Lamplighter, which was the local. Well, let me get my pencil yeah, here. Lamarada <laughs> Lamplighter. Lamp <laughs> Do you have a date on that? If, if it, um, would have been 1976 or seven. All right. Yeah. Oh, and if it wasn't the right. La Mirada Lamplighter, it would have been whatever the Fullerton, California newspaper was. You can look up that. But that photo will come back to haunt him at some point. I know it will. There's too much available these days. Yeah, the Bob Whitey in a nutshell documentary. I'll have it. <laughs> so anyway, I finished up with, with Hector, uh, did a little bit of work with uh, Bob and Joe Adamson on the, the Marx Brothers in a nutshell. And then in 1983 is when I sold off a lot of my collection of stills and stuff to Paul Wesolowski, another old-time friend who I hadn't seen for many years but have reacquainted in the last few years. In 1987, I moved from the Los Angeles area to Grants Pass, Oregon, and continued looking for records and radio shows and whatever. Uh, right now, I'm plugged into the entire record-collecting community worldwide. Um, for old stuff, not necessarily for like Beatles and Led Zeppelin and all that more mm. modern stuff. That's not even modern, but to me, it's more modern. I'm plugged into the Welcome 78 to world and to the world of people who like vintage recordings from the 30s and 40s and whatever. I'm plugged into Skip all the, James. Yeah, all the old radio collectors, yeah. all the old blues collectors. I'm plugged into all of that. And mm -hmm. I have what I call pickers and spies everywhere that are constantly looking for things. And a lot of the record collectors, most of the record collectors do not give a hoot about vintage radio recordings. That doesn't mean anything to them. To them, those are just big, expensive, uh, big, heavy metal records that they can't play and nobody really wants to buy them except me. So uh, they don't care. So when they find that stuff, they call me. So I'm all over the country all the time looking through barns and basements and anywhere I can go, attics, whatever. And I'm going through collections all the time, collections of people who collected vintage records. And a lot of times, more than you would think, people who collected vintage records would occasionally get a hold of broadcast recordings or whatever, and they would just put them in their collection. And there it would sit for a long, long time. And then when they found out somebody would actually be interested in them, hey, <laughs> they'll sell them to you. Mm. So I, I have accumulated... <laughs> A warehouse full of that stuff. Um, now turning to Flywheel, from that day in Groucho's closet until I think about 10 years, it took about 10 years later for another bit of a Flywheel show to show up. And the other bit that showed up, there was a, a gentleman named Jim Harmon who wrote a book called The Great Radio Heroes. And he liked Jack Armstrong, The All-American Boy, and Tom Mix, and all these kids-type radio shows. And he wrote a book on them. And I met him in the 80s. This would be uh, mid-80s. And I just asked him one day if he had anything on the Marx Brothers. And he says, yeah, I have one of those flywheel, Shaster flywheel things somewhere. And I said, you do? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, can you dig it out, please? Well, when he finally dug it out, what he had 
was not an actual original record. He didn't have that, but he had borrowed it from someone and he couldn't remember who. He had borrowed one half of one program. It was actually the mm -hmm. last show, May 22nd, 1933. And he had the second half of it, not the first half. He had the second 15 minutes of it. So, okay, now we had seven, 10 minutes out of one show. And now we had 15 minutes out of another one. But the 15 minutes that he had was much, much better than the seven and a half minutes that I had from Groucho's uh, collection because it was actually the last half of the program. So you got to hear a long, continuous Marx skit. So I thought, oh, great. Yes, we have something. So that was that. Now here comes a bad thing. <laughs> In 1995, skipping ahead about 10 years later again, I got a letter in my mailbox in Oregon. Somebody tracked me down in Oregon and how they found me, I don't know. But it was from somebody in Sacramento, California. And they said, hey, I understand you're looking for flywheel, shyster, and flywheel. I have um, one piece of one show. It's one 15-minute segment. And I thought, great. Hope it matches the one that Jim Harmon had, but even if it doesn't, it's another piece to the puzzle. So I wrote back. The guy provided no phone number. I wrote back and I said, okay, I'm very interested. You're in Sacramento. I'm in Grants Pass, Oregon. That's about a six-hour drive. I'd like to come down, borrow your recording, get it transferred. Can we work that out? Sent off the letter. No response. Okay. A few weeks later, I write another letter. No response. I thought something's wrong here. So I did some detective work, looked up a phone number for this person, called. The number you have reached has been disconnected and is no longer in service. Okay, very bad sign. I got in my car. I drove to the address that was on the letter. Hmm. The house was empty. I knocked on the neighbor's door. I said, what happened? Oh, he died. He ah. died? Yeah. Uh, did he have any relatives? Is there anybody that who cleaned out the house? Oh, I don't know. They had some service <laughs> come and do it. Gone. So I have no idea where that one was ah. or what it was. No, no clue whatsoever. Damn um, him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just gone. I'm like, no, this close and gone. How does this happen? How dare he die? Yeah. How dare he die on me in the middle of this? All right, so now move your move your dating calendar up another 10 years or more, right around 2008 or so. I have a very good friend named Ralph DeLuca, and Ralph is a really well-known dealer in very rare and collector of very rare movie posters. The rarest movie posters you can imagine, he either owns them or he's had them and sold them. And Ralph is a big Marx Brothers fan. He has a very nice, very nice selection of early lobby cards and posters and whatever on the Marx Brothers, along with whole lots of other stuff. And we became friends. And one day I'm sitting in my office in Grants Pass and the phone rings and it's Ralph. And he says, hey, John, what's Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel? <laughs> I said, why are you asking me that? And he goes, well, somebody just offered me a pile of records and that's what's on them. And I said, who? And he says, ah, some guy in Spokane, Washington. Spokane, Washington? Well, how many of them are there? And he goes, I don't know. It's a stack. And I said, did you buy them? He said, no. 
He said, do you want them? And I said, well, yes, immediately, (laughs) immediately. Yes, I want them. What's the phone number? So he gave me the phone number. He said, here, call him. He'll sell them to you. So I called the number. And this guy answered the phone. And I said, I understand you have some recordings of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel that you offered to Ralph DeLuca. And he says, yes, do you want them? And I said, yeah, how many of them are are there? And he goes, I don't know, it's a stack. (laughs) I said, well, send me the stack. How much? $3,000. Fine, send me the stack. So (laughs) a few weeks later, here comes this box with a stack of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel recordings in it. Now, the one thing of all amazing things, remember I told you about the parts five and seven of Flywheel that was in Groucho's closet? Mm. I'm going through, and here's SO program, May 8th, 1933, part one, part three, part two, part four, part eight, and part six. No five and seven. Mm. Well, who's got Mm. five and seven? I already have five and seven. Wow. So then comes the question, where did these come from? Because Groucho had one little piece from that set, and here's the rest of the set along with some others. Where did these come from? So I traced them back. They were sold on eBay in 2004 by a eBay store dealer. And they don't have those anymore. But when eBay was hot uh, back when in the early 2000s, they had eBay stores where people could bring in stuff and you would give the store a percentage for listing your stuff on eBay and they would sell it for you on eBay and you got the most of the money and they got some of the money, but the store name is who was on the seller account. So somebody walked into this eBay store in Southern California with this stack of records and gave them to this eBay store seller who put them on eBay and sold them on eBay. And this guy I don't know if he bought them. I can't remember if he bought them directly from the store or he bought them and then somebody else bought them or whatever. So anyway, I finally, I finally, I've done a whole lot of work with this. I've traced it back as far as who brought that into the store. I found the store. I found the person that the the name of the person. I got the, the owner of the store. I got them to look in their records and find out who brought them in. They gave me the information. I called. It turned out that it was somebody who was a relative of, the name is escaping me now, but one of the um, producers or associate producers on All in the Family. And Michael Feinstein, who's another um, collector of vintage material, mostly music related, um, is involved in this somehow because Michael had seen these flywheel discs at this house and they apparently originated at the, this house of this associate producer of all in the family who lived in Redding, California, which is three hours from Grants Pass where I live. So they were even closer to me than I knew. And they, they were sitting in this garage in Redding, California. And that's how they somehow got from Redding to there to there. So I finally mm. I got Michael Feinstein to give me the name of the associate producer on all in the family who had had them. I called him. And I said, because Michael had talked to him, and Michael said when he talked to him, which had been a year or so before this, he had told him that he won the discs in a contest, a card game contest with Chico. 
and oh. that, and that, and that <laughs> Chico had lost the card game and couldn't uh. pay him any money and handed him this stack of flywheel shyster and flywheel mm. records and said, you might be able to get some money for these someday. This is how I'm going to pay uh. you for my gambling debt here. So there's a, a wow. Chico connection to this. So these apparently were Chico's copies of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel. Now, how wow. Groucho had one piece of them in his house, I have never been able to figure that one out. Ne- Presumably a gambling debt. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. But, but anyway, I did finally get a hold of the associate producer who, uh, when, when, it, when I called, his wife said, well, he's not in very good shape. He can't really tell you much anymore. He, he had had Alzheimer's or something. Anyway, when I got him on the phone, he had no memory of anything. He said, oh, I didn't even own any records like that. I don't know what you're talking about. He had no memory of it. So I'm going on Michael Feinstein's conversation with him a year or two earlier as to where he got them, but I couldn't get him to confirm it for me himself. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the story of where they came from. Was this a complete set? Uh, no, it's not the complete set. It's about six programs, six complete okay. programs. How many programs were there total? Twenty-six. Only twenty-six. Twenty-six. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I've done a lot of tracing. There's a lot of dead ends. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of <laughs> sad days. Um, one actually turned up in Canada a few years ago. Unfortunately, it's a duplicate of one I already have. Now, what it was doing in Canada. <laughs> No idea what it was doing in Canada, and I've tried to trace. What you need to do, what you need to do, is find people who were relatives of those who played cards with Chico. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, um, but Maxine, start start with Bugsy Siegel, and then go <laughs> <Yeah>. from there. <laughs> yes. Oh, when Bugsy Siegel died, he had all the flywheel recordings. <laughs> Maxine remembered them going to this girlfriend of hers, so I don't. That's a confusing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I assume that Groucho had a set at one point, but we don't even know that for sure. Um, the sponsor mm-hmm. probably had a set, but Esso Oil no longer exists. And when I went to whatever archive remains in Texas, they looked at me like, you have those? We don't have anything like that. So they didn't mm-hmm. have it. Uh, did you ever talk to Nat Perrin? He did not have them. He did not have mm-hmm. them, no. Mm-hmm. He had a few scripts. But, yeah. And the scripts exist. That's how we all know what they all sound like. Because he was he was thrilled when the BBC did the, the remakes because yeah. as far as as far as he was concerned it was completely lost. Yeah, I think so, I think he had yeah. one or two scripts or partial scripts or yeah. something, but he didn't yeah. have he didn't have anything. The scripts were at the Library of Congress and still are. Uh, I think mm-hmm. there's one missing. Uh, and I don't know why one is missing, but there's one missing. Um, yeah, no that's Chico that's, sold it. <laughs> Chico sold it. Yeah. So tell us the plan. <laughs> well the plan is this, and it's been underway for far too long, and I'll explain why. But the, the plan is this. The plan is, since I have not only Flywheel, but a lot of other Mark's radio stuff and things related, um, Harpo made a record for Columbia in 1932 that was never released. One side mm-hmm. of that exists. There is at least one, and I'll digress here for a minute because it, maybe it's better to set the table with what there is rather than what you're going to do with it first, um, what there is. I've said this on the council in a couple different posts, but for the audience that listens to this who didn't see the posts, when the films were being made from at least 31 on, they had audio running the entire day of shooting 
every day. Uh, they didn't run film, but they ran audio. Film would go off and on depending on the clapboard and see, take one, scene one, whatever. Then they turn the camera on. But audio was running constantly because they didn't want to turn the, the audio on and off. And it was cheap to buy aluminum blanks to record the, everything that was going on. So the amazing thing that most people do not know is all those Paramount films, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, they were running audio all as they were being done. Now, I have never, ever found any of those discs. They were most likely thrown out at the end of production because they didn't need them anymore. But one survives from a day at the races. And it's really fun because it's during, they're filming the scene at the water carnival where Chico and Harpo are doing the piano thing. And they're setting that up for the cameras. And while they're setting that up, and you can hear people walking in the background and talking and mumbling, they're setting it up. And while they're setting it up, Harpo sits down at the piano and starts playing something entirely different than what he plays in the film. Chico's goofing around at the piano playing something entirely different. And there's a little bit of dialogue uh, with Chico and the directors on there, I think. Anyway, it's a fascinating little thing. It only runs about seven minutes. That's all they could cram onto mm -hmm. this one disc. But it's there. And it's numbered. And, of course, it tells you that there were more for that entire day and every other day that they, they did all these. And they, all this stuff is destroyed. The saddest thing in the world is how no one at all thought that any of this would be needed or cared about mm. 100 years later or 50 years later or even 10 years later. It was not thought of. And the idea of the studios to store it didn't make any sense because they were running audio on every film they were doing at all different times of the day. So they would have mountains of these things just stacked up and they would just toss them at the end of production. So really it's amazing that we have what we do have. It's it, nothing it is absolutely yeah. astounding. Yeah. When you go going back to radio, when I told you that there was one of four possible uh, recordings of any particular show, 90%, this is a proven number 90% of network radio of the 30s no longer exists. The 10% that does is all we have. When you get into the 40s, it gets a little better. You might get down to 80%, but that's it. 80% no longer exists, 20% does. It's all been destroyed. The last big destruction, and this is a horror story, the last big destruction was in 1992. When, yeah, 1992, imagine, not that long ago, when, when um, George W. Bush left office as president and Bill Clinton came in, there was this whole movement to streamline government and save money. Bill Clinton is going to be the savior of saving money. And so they ordered a lot of things destroyed. And one of the things they ordered destroyed was a warehouse in upstate New York, which contained all of the audio that had been recorded for the government from the onset of World War II to the end of World War II. The government, they were looking for any um, spies that might be able to give secret codes over the radio or any kind of crazy thing. The CIA or whoever it was at the time decided that in order to keep America safe, they would record 24 hours of radio, seven days a week, all during World War II. 
And all of that was sitting in a building in upstate New York. Oh, and God. when the Clinton administration came in, it was recycled for the aluminum content. It was just simply destroyed. Ah. Nobody thought to save it. And I heard about it from a retired NBC engineer who called me and, and wanted to know. He said, they're going to sell all this metal for scrap metal. What should we do? And I said, well, how much metal is it? And he said, well, it's the entire World War II. It's a, it's a warehouse full. And I said, well, what are they looking for? And he says, I think it's $250,000 in scrap metal. And I said, well, I don't have 250000 but boy, we should figure out how to get this. And we tried to figure out how to raise the money, and we couldn't, and it went to scrap. Why didn't they make copies? Just make they copies didn't, and then... They didn't care. Ah. They did not care. They no, but, uh, Matthew, you have to start understanding this if you don't already. <laughs> they did not care. Was it cataloged? No. No, they did not care. The people who care are the collectors, the private collectors. All of the the the, the networks didn't care. Um, I'll tell. T- okay, here you, you got me going on this. Um, NBC would have had copies of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel. They would have had the entire series. In 1968 or 69, NBC had a storage facility in. Camden, New Jersey. Uh, they stored all of their radio masters there and everything else. It was part of RCA because RCA was, had the contract to record uh, a lot of the NBC stuff. They blew it up with all the recordings inside to make way for a parking lot. And they gave the employees, the few employees that were left in that building, the opportunity to take anything they wanted before they dynamited the building. There's footage of this. I think it's on YouTube where you can see because they they filmed it for the local TV news of dynamiting this RCA Victor storage building. And they filmed it. I think it's on YouTube. but You can see it blow up. Well, there you can watch Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel blowing up uh, whatever copies were in there because they would have had a set of them in there. And this is 1968. Um, well, this has turned into a downer. Well, I mean, I'll, I can get worse, but <laughs> no, it's it's terrible because this is what I'm facing. This is what I've been fighting since I was a teenager. Is nobody <laughs> cares, and I don't want to well, say. Let's get back to let's get back to flywheel and what we have to look forward to. Okay, <laughs> so I have all this '30s radio material, and I have a ton of stuff from the '40s and some from the '50s, and then all these private things with Groucho from the '70s. Um, I don't know how much of a market there is out there for this. I know it's there's some. There's got to be some. But in order to do it, you have to restore what's there. I mean, to me, I have to restore it. I don't want to put it out there in lousy sound. And the flywheel mm-hmm. discs, for example, by the time they came to me through all this stuff we just talked about, they look and sound terrible. Um, they've been battered. They've been played with diamond needles when they should have been played with bamboo needles. Everything in the world is wrong with them. They skip they, <laughs> on and on and on. And so to fix them, to make them whole again, takes, I'll give you an example, one five-minute side of one record takes 200 hours to restore. 
one five-minute side because there's so much damage. Um, the Film Preservation Society put up a thing on Facebook a few weeks ago where they showed how they restore silent film. And what you do is you, you take the, the roll of film, you scan it at super high resolution, you put it up on a computer screen, and then frame by frame by frame, you take all the defects out of it. And that takes hours upon hours upon hours to do a film. It's the same with radio. It takes hours upon hours because you're going literally five to ten seconds at a time restoring the audio, taking the clicks, the pops, the distortion, the skips, the every, everything away. So we are going through all of the existing 30s material that I have and there's a few mm -hmm. things that I need to get from a couple different archives that we just haven't gotten because we don't need them now. We're inundated with what I already have. But anyway, we're putting it all together along with a book in which I will use all the still photographs from all the programs that I've accumulated over the years. And there's some absolutely fabulous ones from Flywheel and from uh, the, the Marks of Time, which was their second series just after Flywheel. Uh, mm -hmm. Great photographs from that show. And put all of this in a book and then audio CDs in with it, and it'll be one big, when you talk about somebody said, somebody was asking, is there going to be a coffee table book on the Marx Brothers? Well, there's going to be a coffee table size radio book, absolutely, because there's enough to fill a giant coffee type table size book along with about, right now we're at 14 and a half hours of 1930s <laughs> radio. Obviously, predictions are a mug's game, but for all of us who who are waiting with absolutely bated <laughs> breath for this, how how far along are we? We're four and a half hours along, sort of. So <laughs> you know, keep waiting. But I recently hired I recently hired another engineer. You could blow through engineers on this like you would not believe, because imagine the stress of sitting down at a computer. The way it works with this is you put the sound in a digital format. The sound then becomes a pattern on your screen. And then you mm. look for the defects which stand out as blips on the screen. It's like watching a, a thing like this, like stock market ticker blipping along. And you have to mm. isolate each and every blip and manually remove it. There's a way to mm. do it where you wipe it all off quickly. But you do when you do that, you take all the life out of it. You suck all the, the high end, the low end, it right. just becomes this mid-range mess. And I hate that, mm -hmm. so I refuse to do that. We could have it done in a week if I did it that way, but I refuse to do that because it's just not going to sound right. Um, when you all listen to, at the very end of this show, we teased about a, a little song clip from radio. When you listen to that, that one isn't finished. It'll sound like it to you, but it's about 80% finished, so it's good enough to, to play on this, on this yeah. podcast. But, uh, but but on a really good podcast, yeah, we need a better <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. But the, 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 so you did a similar thing with Laurel and Hardy, didn't you? Not to this degree. I did two things on Laurel and Hardy using rare audio. It was a little easier with the second one because it was a reel-to-reel -reel tape of Stan Laurel mm -hmm. being recorded off off a telephone line, and that one didn't require much restoration. The, but the other ones we used, we didn't we didn't take it as far as this. This is taking restoration as far as you can go so that when we're done, it sounds like you're listening to something that was recorded yesterday. That's the goal. Now, there's still going to be, in some parts of Flywheel, 
There's some distortion in it that I don't think we can remove. We can minimize it to where it's listenable, but we can't remove all of it. But a lot of it is going to sound just like it was recorded yesterday. So we're doing not only flywheel shifting flywheel. Uh, we've got one episode of the Marks of Time, the American Oil Show. We've got the Day at the Races live on Hollywood Hotel. Um, you asked earlier for things. Uh, is there some things that I, that I wish I had that we don't? I'll give you two more. Um, and this, this I just found out about. This is something Robert Bader found out about, so I have to give him the credit for that. Um, when the Night at the Opera tour hit Salt Lake City, the Marxes went on radio and did scenes from it on radio. Now, hmm. I don't know what they did. We don't know. But he's been able to determine that they did it. And we have the date they did it, and we have the radio station they did it on. So my next trip to Salt Lake City, and I have a, a, a sister-in-law who lives just outside Salt Lake City, is going to be, I'm going to have to go and see if that radio station still exists, which it may or may not, who the oldest person working at that radio station is, and then trace backwards, because none of them will be, be there now that we're still alive when that thing was done, but trace backwards. And it's a Mormon town. It's a Mormon uh, radio station. They have great genealogy. I'll bet you I can find who was running the studio at the day that th that thing was done and then trace their relatives and see if they recorded it and if those relatives wow. hung on to that daddy or granddaddy's recording of the Marx Brothers. If they're Mormons, they'll have a lot of relatives. Yeah, you should document the search. Yeah. Well, yeah, these are big ifs, but this is what I do. This is why it's hard to nail me down to do one of these things because I'm always busy doing something like this somewhere across the country trying to nail down one of these broadcasts. So that's one that I'm trying to find. It was mentioned on one of the earlier podcasts. Somebody said, well, we have trailers for Duck Soup. We have trailers for Day at the Races and onward, but we don't have a trailer for Night at the Opera. Well, we do now because one turned up a few weeks ago. Oh, friend of mine, weeks. a few weeks ago. Wow! A, a friend of mine called me from Los Angeles. and said, "You won't get, guess what I just found." And hopefully, I said more flywheel. And he says, "No, yeah. not more flywheel." But how about the trailer for Night at the Opera? Ah, really? And we should clarify, we mean in an original trailer. There is a an existing trailer, but that's from a re-release. No, no, I'm talking about radio trailer, not not video. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. No, you, no, I'm, radio I'm trailer. Oh. For each oh. of the films, there was a radio trailer and a visual trailer for the theaters. Okay. This is the radio okay. trailer. I've never heard the word trailer used in conjunction with radio. That's I would what think they call promo, it. Yeah. Promo or something. Yeah, yeah, actually, the MGM ones are called Leo is on the Air. That's mm -hmm. what they called it. Leo is on the air. And it was a 15-minute promotional thing that they would press up and send out to radio stations across the country during the weeks um, just before the films come out and just after. They were running them as publicity to get people to go to the theaters to see the movies. So has it got interesting, different stuff on it from what we know? Well, that's what I had hoped. And the, the, the thing <laughs> is, I have to say, it's a big disappointment because... Boy, does it tell you where MGM was thinking when they signed the Marx Brothers. Yes, it's, indeed. Yeah. It starts out good. It starts out with saying, you are about to see the funniest picture you've ever seen. So says Stan Laurel of <laughs> Laurel and Hardy. And, and then it quotes two or three other people about the funniest picture they ever seen. And then you hear honk, honk, and here come the Marx Brothers. And I'm thinking, great, now we're going to hear something special. 
But first, let's hear a song. And they cut to Alan Jones doing whatever. And then they go to Ki- then they go to Kitty Carlisle doing whatever. And then they come back and just <laughs> before the program runs out, there's a take, which could be an alternate take. I don't know, but there's a take. I have to listen to it again. There's a take of Harpo doing Alone from A Night at the Opera on the Harp. And that's mm. it. The program oh. ends at that point. Mm-hmm. So no manicurist? Or- no. Now, here's one I, w- <laughs> here's one I wish we had. Um, ju- and it may exist. I'm not 100% sh- 100% sure this one doesn't. But just uh, you can hear. It's not very good quality, but it will be when I get through with it. There is one for a day at the races on the Hedda Hopper Hollywood Hotel where Groucho sings Dr. Hackenbush and they do the Tootsie Fritzy ice cream scene. That exists. We're going to have it in spectacular sound on the set. But mm-hmm. I have found out that they did scenes from A Night at the Opera in 35 on the same program. So I'm hoping that that one exists. Now that I know the date of it, I'm going to have to start that search. And of course, every time you go down one of these rabbit holes, it delays the project because I want to have that. If that exists, I want to have it on the set. But if it doesn't, uh, it won't be there. But in the meantime, we have so many hours left of restoration on these radio shows that it doesn't matter. I can keep chasing rabbit holes until we get this restoration on what we have done. Once we Why have are you every- wasting time talking to us? Yeah, yeah. well, let's... Get on yeah. with it. See? See? You wanted me for this show. We could be out hunting down something. So I guess we should wind this one down. I got all these questions. I, I didn't even get to a fraction of them. I have a sense that we've scratched the surface of the yeah. surface of the surface. Can you come on another 25 times? <laughs> we could, uh, that's fine. We can do another one. I don't know how much more there is, but yeah, there's, there's still more I can tell you about things that exist from the 40s that people would go, what? That By the really way, exists? Yes. here's a basic question I bet you never get asked. What's your favorite Mark's film? Yeah. Okay. The honest answer to that is it varies from day to day. Um, some days it's animal crackers. Some days it's horse feathers. Some days it's duck soup. Is it ever go west? <laughs> hey, remember before the show? He said he doesn't drink. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I actually have to tell you, I find bits of go west charming. I love the riding the range scene, which I think Matthews cited it before as something that he yeah. likes. And That's nice. there's a few other bits that I like. Overall, not so hot, but, um, you know, they, they, they did film that, too. They filmed the tour mm. for that. That's been rumored mm. for years. Nobody has it that we know of. Mm. Uh, Ma- yeah. I'll, I'll digress one more time. Um, Maury Riskin told me they filmed scenes from Day at the Races on the road as well and recorded Ooh. them. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's things out there, maybe. Well, we do know that audio clips of the uh, Night in Casablanca tour will be made available for the first time in the upcoming Blu-ray set. So we have that to look forward to. That's totally unexpected. Yes, uh, and there are more yeah. than audio clips that exist, that I can tell you. Oh, so surprise, surprise. <laughs> and they didn't come from me. I didn't have them, but okay. boy, are they fabulous. Wow. Two shows were oh. recorded, two complete shows. On audio or, On audio. or film as well? On audio. audio. Wow. You know, John, we really just want to thank you for coming on and letting us into your world and telling us all these great stories. Yeah, I, I, I could go on for hours, but, uh, you know, there are laws against these things, or at least there should be. 
Yeah, you you guys didn't get in many questions, and I but I warned you I can ramble, so I did. Well, we hope you'll come back some at some future point. Okay, you tell me. We'll we'll try to work it in amidst all the restoration and all the other running around the world stuff. Okay, now we're not done just yet, John. Uh, why don't you introduce the clip, and then I'll tell you yes. what we'll come back and talk about it afterwards. Okay, what what, what this is is a little segment from the Kellogg Radio Hour in 1939. It's the segment that I referred to that I played for Groucho uh, with Aaron Fleming in his home in 1975. I really like this. When I heard this, it was like, this is the kind of thing they did on radio. You can hear stuff like this because we could mm -hmm. see 13 movies and that's it. But there's other things out there. And this is an example of other things. Yeah. This is yeah. Groucho and Chico. It's, a, it's the end of a longer routine. I didn't give you the whole thing because it would just go on and on. It runs about 15 minutes altogether. But it's the end of a... Yeah, we won't want that. Yeah, it's the end of a longer <laughs> routine. Well, it's just too because long. Because a lot of Groucho radio from the 40s and so on, you know, it's charming. Right. It's absolutely charming, but it's 40s radio. Correct. But yeah. this, is the, this is the Marx Brothers, isn't right. it? Right, yes. this is the Marx Brothers. Now, it's during the time of filming of, at, at, at the circus. Um, mm. The Kellogg Hour was written by a guy named Carol Carroll, who I interviewed, and I have a whole long interview with him. And he actually writes quite well for them. It's, it's, it's quite well written. It's a, the end of a skit, and then they do a little song, which is very, to me, very reminiscent of Kalmar and Ruby and that whole Paramount period called I Want My mm. 15 Bucks. Okay, so 80% restored? Here it is. And boss, if you don't mind, I want my $15. I can use it to run the house on. I refuse to talk about that $15. Will you talk about five of it? <laughs> the kid needs some braces for his teeth. Well, I need braces for my pants. Now get that fresh kid out of here. Tell him to stay off the property. I don't want him around, see? Hey, now look, you can say anything you want about me, but you can't talk like that about my kid. I'm sorry I brought the kid up. You didn't bring him up. I brought him up. <laughs> I'm his mom, and you can't talk like that about my kid. We need the money. I want my 15 bucks, see? I want my 15 bucks. He wants his 15 bucks. He wants his 15 bucks. That's why the fellow hollers. He wants his 15 dollars. Did you ever, ever, ever see such impecuniosity? That may fool you, but it don't fool me. I want my 15 bucks. His measly 15 bucks. I will admit, I use my wit to hoodwink my competitors. On some far beach, I love to sit, evading all my creditors. But what I do, I must do well. That's always my ambition. And 15 bucks is a bag of tell to a man in my position. His questionable position, his eminently ludicrous, precarious position. This man now stands where fine folks tread. I saved him from the gutter. I tried to make the rat well bred. He wants both sides with butter. For helping out a pal, I'm sued. That's fine, that is, that's funny. I can't face such ingratitude. Besides, he's out of money. He's completely out of money. A devastating, perfectly appalling lack of money. I want my 15 bucks. Hi. I want my 15 bucks. Nuts. That man is back with the same old crack. He wants his 15 bucks. What would you do with a paltry $15, Sonny? $15 put out at a reasonable rate of interest over a considerable period of time is a lot of money. Fifteen juicy smackers would keep a man in crackers. 
15 smart simoleons would keep me in Napoleons. Money, 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 money. Ha, 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 Don't make me laugh. Don't make me so. I tell you now what I said before. I want my 15 bucks. One buck, two bucks, three bucks, four bucks. Sorry, boss, but I gotta have more bucks. You make me sick, that's what I'm through. I'm cut to the quick. And about time, too. Don't pull any tricks, and I do mean you. I want my 15 bucks. My friend, you're out of luck. You mean to say I'm stuck? You go on strike. I've struck. Before he runs amok, advance the guy a buck. What a ducket. A drop in the bucket. Buck, 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 buck. Get. I want my 15 bucks. Say, hold that guy, you clucks. He swings, but Groucho ducks. Shucks. Here's your 15 bucks. Oh, mama, here's your 15 bucks. Ring out, oh, joyous bell. In peace at last we dwell. Ring out, oh, joyous bell. In peace at last we dwell. In friendship's name. Ring out for all his The second meeting of the circle stands adjourned. The meeting stands adjourned. The meeting stands adjourned. Rodelli's gaze is wandering. The Groucho brain is pondering. Did you ever, ever, ever see such a pretty petty larceny? Who took that 15 bucks from me? It's gone again. I'm the gone. meeting stands adjourned. Ring our own Don't miss the circle next week with Noel Coward, in addition to the Marx Brothers, Robert Emmett Dolan, the foursome, Cary Grant, Carol Lombard, and Ronald Coleman. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Well, my big question that you uh, touched on already, John, is about the authorship of that song. Uh, upon listening to it, it immediately sounds like Kalmar and Ruby. Um, the melody sounds like I always get my man a little bit. Um, it also has a, a line, a one buck, two buck line that's mm -hmm. reminiscent of the song Timbuktu. Correct. Um, it has a very Gilbert and Sullivan quality to it. Yes. I noticed that Groucho's first line makes use of the word impecuniosity, I think, uh -huh. which is Groucho must have admired. <laughs> so is this a Kalmar and Ruby composition? Do I don't know. know. It does. There is no credit on the show as to who wrote it or what it mm. is. So I don't know. And I, when I played it for him, remember I told you in the beginning, he remembered singing this mm. and he was singing along a little bit while it was playing. So he knew he knew what it was, but no, he didn't have any. I didn't hmm. ask him, but I, there was no, nothing was brought up as to who wrote it. And anytime we could hear Chico sing is a real treat. Is yeah. there more of that? Yeah. A rare treat. Well, the thing of, is Chico and Groucho singing together. Yeah. Uh, and yes, there is more of that. One thing that you probably don't know, because in the Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel recreations, I don't believe they do this, 
But did you know that at the end of every episode of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel, Groucho and Chico sang? Hmm. Is that in the script? I don't think it is, and I don't think it's on the BBC performances. But they sang at the end of each broadcast. I, the ones I have, they're on there singing. And the song is called Good Night, Ladies. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. It's in the published scripts. They, they refer to that at the end of, I think at the end of each script, they do a little SO spot. And then they say goodnight, ladies, and it's heavily implied that it was sung. It's a song. They sing, yeah. they sing a chorus out of goodnight, ladies, at the end of each episode of Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel. Is it goodnight, ladies, goodnight, yes. ladies? Yeah. Yes, you know it. Yeah. 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 We're going to leave you now. Oh. Yep, that's it. Wow. So Groucho and Chico did sing together. They also sang together on Paps Blue Ribbon Town. Hmm. I think that's going to about do it. Uh, how, how do we end this, guys? Everything before we go. How do you end this? Say goodbye. <laughs> I want my fifteen bucks back. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is hosted by Matthew Conium, Noah Diamond, and Bob Gassell, and is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by leaving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, The Solo Career of Groucho Marx, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, The Lost Marx Brothers Musical, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. This is Heidi Cassell. See you next time.